So the other thing I did was, from the get-go in this one, when I finally got my name in the credits, and I'm in the credits for any number of episodes that I've been working on, again, I did the same thing with my brother's name as my middle name. Imagine there was a device that could scan the whole world and find all the humans who have Assyrian ancestry. Then, imagine that you could gather all these Assyrians into one place and get to know them. Who do you think you'd find in that number? When we first started the Assyrian podcast, we had no idea how far and wide the Assyrian people are still impacting the world. If someone would have come to me when I was a kid and said, Hey, there's an Assyrian guy living in Japan who is creating Sega video games and is the voice of Sega Rally Championship. I probably would have first been shocked, then wondered how I could score some free games, <laughs> and then I'd be telling all my friends about how proud I was to be an Assyrian. Today's guest has over two decades of experience as a virtual effects technical director at numerous studios, including movie franchises like Star Wars, Star Trek, The Matrix, Pirates of the Caribbean, Transformers, and Shrek. These stories you're going to hear today about what happened are true. All of it. And in today's episode, you'll get to meet Ken Ibrahim. You'll learn about his family, his love for visual effects, music, and someone named Ultraman. Ken will take us on a journey from Baghdad to incarceration at Ellis Island, to a Methodist minister in Massachusetts, to the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California, and to a galaxy far, far away. Today's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is sponsored by the good people at the Assyrian Podcast, our hosts and everyone who supports the podcast, including our listeners who keep us motivated to keep creating awesome content. We want to inspire, encourage, question, and lift up our community. What does it really mean to be an Assyrian? We continue to explore that question here at the Assyrian Podcast. Holidays are coming up. Have you purchased your loved ones an Assyrian Podcast shirt or sweater? Go to www.assyrianpodcast.com and load up on that swag. Do you like what you're hearing? Please rate and review us wherever you listen to the Assyrian Podcast. Share it with your friends. Do you know someone who should be on the podcast or someone who would like to host an episode? Fill out the form on our website and let us know. And now, strap on your seatbelt as we get ready to go into hyperdrive, and may the force be with you as we hear from Ken Ibrahim. Thank you for being on the show. I'd Thank love, you for having me. I'd love to start with your Assyrian heritage. I noticed that you mentioned your Assyrian ethnicity on your social media and on your LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. So it's something I think you're really proud of. Share with us your family, your background. Sure, yeah. Well, I have to say I feel lucky to be from such a historically significant heritage and, uh, and proud of the fact that I'm part of the Assyrian people as a whole, even though I'm really half Assyrian. But... Most of the time when I've met groups of Assyrians, it's been very seldom in my life, to be honest. They're very welcoming to me. And when I tell them, well, I'm, I'm half Assyrian, they say, oh, no, no, you're full Assyrian. You know? <laughs> so it's always kind of nice. I feel welcome in that regard. But I always feel ashamed that I didn't really learn the language. I, I really wish I had spent more time with it. So for the, the kind of story behind the, uh, the origin story, so to speak, so my father's the Assyrian parent, and he was born and raised in Iraq. 
basically he was raised in, in Baghdad. And then he came to the States to go to college. And he did it under the guise of being a petroleum engineer. Because what he's really interested in was drama and speech. But uh, I remember him telling me that his mother would never go for that, to send him all the way to the States. And my uncle, his older brother, had already come to the States, and he became a Methodist minister in Massachusetts. So my dad... Wait, what's his name? Oh, well, he's got a very Assyrian name, Sargon. And my dad's name was Ninev. Ninev and Sargon are brothers. Yeah. And Sargon becomes a Methodist minister? Yeah. I've actually never heard of that. Okay. Of an Assyrian who's in that tradition. Yeah. Because usually you'll hear like Presbyterian or Assyrian Church of the East, obviously, or even Chaldean. Yeah. Or even like evangelical or Pentecostal Mm -hmm. or whatever. But Methodist is out of the blue. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly how he chose to become a Methodist minister, but I think it has something to do with the fact that I remember my dad telling me that I assume my uncle went to the same school when they were young. The first school they went to, I think from like elementary up to for my dad anyway, part of high school until they shut it down, was started and operated by Methodist missionaries from the States. It Mm. was like a couple, I think. So that's probably a large influence. My uncle, of course, was very religious and was very learned. So my dad, uh, you know, they grew up speaking Arabic in, in society. The schooling was in Arabic there. Going to that American school for, it was called the American School for Boys, I think. So he said that that's where he really started to learn English. And then he was really interested in drama and theater and movies. So he watched a lot of American movies that were shown there. So he also got a lot of English from that. But I think that was the major influence for my uncle becoming a Methodist minister. And then my dad, you know, he was a member of the Methodist church locally here, you know, for many, many in years. Mon- in Monterey. In, in Pacific Road. What's the best way to describe where Monterey is in the United States? It's in the central coast of California. It's near Pebble Beach, which is pretty famous. Yeah. It's literally right next to Pebble Beach and Carmel. Those are the two. And then Pacific Grove is just neighboring those cities. Yeah, and it's like two hours from San Francisco. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned to me that your dad wanted to be an actor. Well, well, there's actually so many fascinating pieces when it comes to your dad. So he comes here under the guise of studying petroleum engineering, but then he ends up being like a language guru. Yeah. Uh, so what happened was the original plan was he would return to Iraq. He was just coming here for the four years of school. And he went to Oklahoma. I think it was called Oklahoma A&M in Stillwater, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And I think he, he had a best friend when he was growing up. And they both together went to that to that school. It was like another story of how he got there, which was kind of interesting. So apparently my grandmother was kind of an entrepreneur. So when my dad said he wanted to come to the States, she wanted to make sure he was dressed very well. So apparently she was... Among other things, good at as a seamstress for for women's clothing, and so she made some arrangement with some local tailor or something that if the tailor would make a suit, a men's suit for my father and his best friend, then she would do a certain amount of of tailor or seamstress work for his female clients, something like that, kind of a barter system. So the suits were made; they were well dressed. They did the trek from uh, from Iraq. I think they went to Damascus first by bus, and then from there took another bus, a smaller one, to Beirut. And then from Beirut, they took a small ship to get to uh, Italy. And I think they were in Italy for a few days. And while he was there, they knew they were going to to America and they'd seen all these movies and whatnot. So they thought, hey, they're going to be cool. And they bought uh, jeans and some other shirts or something. Then they took this kind of like a cruise, you know, across the Atlantic to to get to New York. And before they got to New York, they decided, again, it would be cool to look like Americans as much as possible. 
But apparently it kind of worked against them because uh, they didn't have a lot of money with them because when they applied to that school, I guess part of the deal was the school said they'd pick up a lot of their expenses. And so they didn't bring a lot of money with them and they were wearing jeans and whatnot. And the, the, the people thought there's something wrong here. These are not real students coming here. Something else is going on. So they incarcerated them at Ellis Island. Wow. And so uh, my dad was there apparently for about a week or so. And he didn't tell my uncle that he was coming. And the reason was, I, I think he said that if he knew his, if his older brother knew that he was going to come to the States, his older brother would have told him not to come or something. So he was afraid of that happening. But then my grandmother, this is all letters at the time, informed my uncle that my father was coming. So when he got incarcerated, and luckily when he got incarcerated there, my uncle came and bailed him out. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I bet your dad was happy at that point. Yeah, yeah. And then he said he actually stayed with my uncle for a little while before they he took a train to get to uh, Oklahoma. That's like uh, your that's like your classic big brother move right there. Yeah. Coming yeah, to yeah. bail you out. You know? Well done. Good thing Uncle Sarge was there mm-hmm. yeah, um, to save the day. But yeah, so that's how my dad got into the country. Then he made it properly to the school. And he was going to be there for the four years, go back to Iraq. But because at the time, everything was fine there, you know. And it was, it was this King Faisal. I don't know if it was the second or something. I think his grandfather was King Faisal of Iraq. And then he... I don't remember what happened to him, but it, leadership went to his son, and his son was killed in a car accident, I think mm-hmm. it was. And they don't, I remember my dad telling me he didn't know whether this was I an accident I was or whatnot. But uh, Iraqi history buff, I am not. Yeah, I don't know. I, I really, so this is another now theme I of go mine. search this. It's yeah. interesting. Then the younger Faisal took over, and again, everything was good there, and then he was assassinated. And then things start getting bad. Mm-hmm. So my grandmother said, don't, don't return, stay in the States, get a job. That's the way you can stay there. And so he, he got a couple of short-term jobs. Eventually, he got a, a I think it was like a six-month contract to come and teach Arabic at the Defense Language Institute in Monterey, California, here, you know, just yeah. down the street. And so he did that. And then that six months turned into, I don't know, like 38 years, I think, in total. That is so fascinating. But the other thing about it is, I think probably at best, at least in the Arabic department, maybe only 10% of the people who end up teaching there actually have a degree in teaching like they actually studied to teach the arabic language like my dad and so many others it just was like happenstance and they it would sound maybe sounded like a good job to them it served some purpose like in my dad's case and it was just the, the language they spoke but i don't know how well i could teach english so i'd have to like oh what was that i don't right. I've, I've forgotten like you know a good third of english grammar yeah right? so how is so, it that you know these people are able to teach teach that with honestly the- i don't know yeah. I don't know. I, I forget if they give them some kind of training when they get in there. Yeah. Because I don't know, like, when Arabic is taught in, in the Middle East to native speakers, like, how methodical it is. Because I've taken some Arabic classes. Uh, my dad helped me a little bit. But I did take some classes. And most of them use something called the Hans Ware Dictionary. I don't mm-hmm. know if you're familiar with this one. No. But it was run, written by a German man named Hans Ware. And I don't remember if he kind of developed this system or not. But... You know, like all Semitic languages have this triliteral root system. Right. So the whole dictionary, and again, I don't know if Arabic, native Arabic dictionaries are done this way or not, but like in English, you'd have a verb, you'd have the infinitive of the verb, and then if you had a noun related to it, you know, that would just show up alphabetically. But in this dictionary, it, everything's presented initially, You, I guess it's alphabetical by the three root, three root letters. Yep. And then from there, you have all the inflections and conjugations out of that, and you put like a meme in front of it, it becomes like the place of the action, and... To me, that's really cool. It's like mathematics and the language. Right. They, I assume they all understand these things. But for instance, when I lived in Japan, I was really impressed. Japanese, so for instance, in everyday conversation, I think 
Japanese has about five times the amount of vocabulary as a Romance language. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that they use a lot of characters that are from Chinese.、Uh, and you can have a lot of like, words that have the same pronunciation, but they have different meanings.、Um, and a lot of idiomatic expressions and things like that. But I'm really impressed when I was in Japan. I could ask somebody, oh, what does this word mean as I'm learning? And they'd be able to tell me. And I, I would think, like, if somebody were to ask, like, this kind of spattering of words in English, even though we use them sometimes, like, I, I wouldn't be able to, like, explain it or describe it properly. I just kind of know how to use it. Right. But in Japan, like, they all could explain what the word actually meant. It's like, wow, that is really impressive. Right. They just, like, know their la- own language really well. Yeah. And, and I think their education system is very good there. Yeah. And you've、mm-hmm. got that in your family because you had shared with me that your grandpa had a dictionary of Assyrian words. Right. So one of his, I mean, obviously he had. Jobs during the course of his life. But one of his like passions, his lifelong project, I think, was this tome of a book, which was a handwritten, very articulately written dictionary English to Assyrian and Assyrian to English. Do you, you still have that?、Uh, my aunt has it, I believe. Oh, okay. So my dad has a younger sister. My dad passed away last year. My uncle passed away, I think, almost 20 years ago. And my aunt's still alive. She lives in, in London, but she has that dictionary now, I think. But that was amazing. So, when I was a kid, so my grandparents, they lived, so the rest of the family all left. But anyway, so they finally all got to the state. But on the way to the States, my aunt and uncle, they were in Iraq at the time. They left and eventually wound up in,、uh, in Lebanon in an area called Brumana, which is up in the hills, I think.、Uh, as far as I visited there as a kid, that's where I first met them. And my grandparents were with them and my two cousins. So, I met them all at the same time in 1975. And with my, I have a younger brother named Steve. And、uh, so my dad took、uh, my brother and I with him and introduced us to the family, basically. In 1975? Yeah,、That's、we flew、amazing. into Beirut. And,、uh, and, your, and your mom was cool with that? Yeah, so I didn't mention my mom is not Assyrian. She's、right. of mixed European descent, born in the States. But yeah, she, I, th- I think she, she's very supportive and really、um, inquisitive and interested in a lot of things. That's, she, she met and got interested in my dad because、yeah. he's from the Middle East. She was really interested in the Middle East. Well, your、um, mom and your dad also have like a cool story because your dad wanted to be an actor. Yeah. He was working towards being an actor. And then he met your mom at the theater, right? Right. So, yeah. So, this is here in Monterey. So, while my dad was teaching Arabic in the days, I think he was going and doing acting at this place called the First Theater in Monterey.、Mm-hmm. And probably, I guess, also on weekends. He also, photography was a hobby of his. So, he has a lot of photos, like really well done photos of the cast and whatnot in these plays. But anyway, so my mother was an usher there. And that's, that's where he met her. How old was your dad when he came to the States? 20. He was 20.、Uh, and then they went to that American school for boys. Do you know anything about that school? Not in particular, other than it was founded and run by Methodist, Methodist missionaries.、Yeah. And、uh, do you know if it's still around or anything? No,、like、I don't know. Because I remember he told me he went, he went there from、uh, like elementary school through, I think, until almost his last one or two years of high school, and then it got shut down. And then he ended up transferring to like a public school there、yeah. in Baghdad. Because he must have gotten a phenomenal education at that American school for boys. Yeah, you would, you would imagine. And it would have had some kind of Methodist influence, I would assume. I don't know what. Right. But... Were your grandparents like well to do in Iraq? Like, did they. I, not that I know of, no. My grandfather worked、uh, when my, around the time my dad was born, he was working for the railroad system.、Mm-hmm. And so he was actually stationed up in Kirkuk. In the north. So my dad was born there. And then when my dad was only about a, a year old, they moved back to Baghdad. 
So my grandparents had met in Baghdad. Because my grandparents, for the Assyrian people out there who wonder, you know, what tribes are these people from and whatnot. So um, I've learned that my grandmother is Urmishneta. So she's from Urmia. Mm -hmm. And my grandfather was Marbujnai. So he was from, I guess, Marbishu is the name of the village or town. But I, I think my dad told me it was in like, I don't even know now if borders have been redrawn since then or whatnot, but it was in Azerbaijan mm -hmm. in an area that was, it was either, it was either there or it was some in some remote part of Turkey. And because he said that they spoke a language called Turkmani and there was a Turkmani people. So I, I, I don't know the details of that, but that's where my grandfather was from. Other people listening to this, I'm sure, would know a lot better than I do. Yeah. This is what I'm talking you're, you're about. You're going to emails and messages and people yeah. just reaching out. Yeah. So my my knowledge, again, is not nearly unfortunate. I Unfortunately, not nearly as much as it should be. I all all the details, you know, and it's just a part of our background. We do. We have a lot of unique stories. Yeah. Well, I learned a word. I, a lot of words I learned in Assyrian actually come from songs because when I was... I love music. It's a, I do music as a hobby. But when I was a kid... I listened to a lot of Assyrian music that friends of the family would make cassette tapes. This is back in the eighties and give them to my dad. And I, you know, I would listen to him quite a bit. I remember this one word in a song and it actually wasn't until maybe only a few years ago, I found out what that word meant. And then I heard it used in one of the episodes of your podcast. I think it's Galuta. Hmm. Is that right? Galuta or Galuta? It means the diaspora, I think. Mm -hmm. I haven't um, heard that myself. So that, so that might be bad on my end. <laughs> I'm not positive. I think so. But I, it was kind of interesting uh, when I listened to that episode, which had to do with a group of Assyrians that were born outside of the Atra. Yes, it's the uh, Iraqi roundtable. And they had gone back, I guess, to Iraq. Yes. And I thought, you know, I'd kind of been thinking of doing that myself at different points in my life. And I have a cousin who lives in Urbil, and he's, he keeps telling me you should come and visit. It's safe. You don't have to worry about anything. You stay with me and whatnot. And so I kind of toy with that idea in my mind. And then when I heard that episode, I was like, wow, that's really cool. Those people went and did that. <laughs> Maybe I should do it. Maybe I'm not too old to do that. But then they use that word in the uh, in the episode. And I thought, oh, I got to look that up <laughs> again because I had forgotten it. Yeah. But uh, but going back to your your dad went to the American School for Boys, which yeah. Let's park for a moment yeah. at the the acting thing because mm -hmm. really your dad sounds to me like an unconventional person who said. I really like doing these things. I'm going to do them. Like, that's a lot of freedom, right? Right. Yeah. Because usually, like, for that generation, when they arrived here, it was, how do I make money, find a job, get the rest of my family here, stuff like that? Yeah. So I think he came at a time when he wasn't an, an immigrant, so to speak. He wasn't fleeing anything. Like uh, I mentioned, he had told me that things in Iraq were really good at the time. He planned to go back and continue life there. But then when the king was assassinated, things started going downhill. It sounds like for your dad, he was not fleeing. Like you say, he was not fleeing. So he was excited maybe to go back. I mean, was acting a thing in Iraq or what? That, I don't, I'm, I'm sure they had. Yeah. You know. But he did tell me, I mean, I guess he was kind of adventurous himself. When he was really young, he said, I think he must have been in the equivalent of, you know, late elementary school or junior high school. During the summer, I think it was, he wanted to get a job. So he, on his own, went down to... Uh, I tried to remember the story exactly. There was like the, the there was a military base or something there, and they had um, like an officers' club. I just remember him mentioning an officers' club, and it may have been British actually, because he said he he went in. He you know he asked about getting a job, and they said, "Oh, we have one for you." I mean, he's just a young kid, 
And apparently he was going to be like a, a bellboy or a porter or something like that. And then eventually they just had him like when when the officers would come in, they would put their hats, check them in and whatnot. He would be the, the person to check him in and give him back that kind of thing. And I think he said then the hours were actually a little bit late. So his my grandfather would come and meet him and walk him home and whatnot. But one of the interesting little bits of trivia out of that is that one of, one of the managers there said, told my dad, he said, oh, you know, you look a lot like my, it was either his son or his brother, whose name is Kenneth. So while you work here this summer, you're going to be called Kenneth. Wow. And, and that, that's how, that, that's how I got my name. name. Yeah. Man, that is so cool. <laughs> wow. So my dad was Kenneth for a little while when he was a kid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, you were his firstborn, right? Yeah. And in, he would joke a lot and do a lot of puns and whatnot, which I, I really didn't like when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. But as I got older, I, I started doing it myself. <laughs> but he, because I, I have one younger brother, he's a year and a half younger than me. I mentioned Steve. And so in order to make us feel equal, he would say, Kenneth, you're my first firstborn. And Stephen, you're my, you're my second firstborn. Mm-hmm. It's just the way he would, you know, he would come up with things like that. Got it. Yeah. No, I've, I haven't heard that one before, but it's kind of a good little equalizer. Yeah. 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 But the other thing about my dad, and like you mentioned the interest in acting and all that. So one of the reasons I don't speak Assyrian very well, well, first of all, it's because my mother didn't speak. And my parents got divorced when I was very young, maybe I think two years old or something. And uh, so my brother and I, we both initially were raised by my mom. So I spent all the time with my mom as kids, even though they had an amicable relationship. So I'd see my dad, I guess, you know, every weekend or something like that. And they kept on good terms. But it wasn't until I got into middle school that I actually moved in with my dad. So in those, you know, those really early formidable years when you when you develop the sounds and all that with speech and whatnot, I was yeah. with my mom the whole time. But also then my dad's English is kind of impeccable, really, grammatically and everything. He had a bit of an accent, but, um, but he spoke, you know, fluently like a native. And uh, so there was really no reason for, for me to have to learn to communicate with him. And unfortunately, this is the other aspect, aspect of my dad. I think he was just kind of like a very gregarious person and just loves chatting with people and meeting people and whatnot. He doesn't have anything against being a Syrian, but I, it just seemed like he didn't have any real interest in it. He's just doing his own thing. Mm-hmm. And so I think when he was, had this idea of coming to the States, he just wanted to come here and do his own thing. And, you know, great. If you're, if you're interested in the fact I'm Assyrian, well, great. You know, I'll, you know, I could ch- talk with you a little bit about that. But it's, he didn't gravitate toward Assyrians. Yeah. So there wasn't, a, I, I really know almost nothing about Assyrian culture from my dad. Mm-hmm. It's all from my interactions with the other parts of my family and friends of the family. Right. Especially your aunt, right? <laughs> well, yeah. So when I was younger, like when we visited them in, in uh, Lebanon, they later moved. Their next location was um, London. And they lived there in this really nice house called the Orchard House, near Pinewood Studios, apparently. Mm-hmm. And so I went there twice, once with my dad and brother again, a few years after Lebanon. And then when I was in high school, I went again for a summer and stayed with him. And that, that time, I really made an effort to, to try and learn as much as I could of the language from my aunt, who, again, had really studied it. She even studied cuneiform writing. And I remember she took me to the British Museum and explained a lot of things there, which was really interesting. But I still have a notebook somewhere where... I had a section for verbs and nouns and adjectives and was taking all these notes and, you know, the masculine and feminine forms of things and all of that. And I actually, I rediscovered that notebook about a year and a half ago and I started turning it into a, a Google sheet. Mm. And I thought, you know, I'm going to get everything as much as I can up there. And then I actually, before my dad passed away, I said, okay, I came up with a whole bunch of sample sentences of common things you might say, mm-hmm. not like pleasantries or something, but 
something like, you know, oh, I, I forgot to turn the light off or whatever. And it's have them say all these things. And then I, I actually transliterated it and then put it up uh, and put the audio as well. So I made another kind of like a Google sheet with that stuff. So I was thinking maybe, you know, if you're interested, we could we, we could look into that and do something about language training, because that's something that's kind of sorely missed that I've been looking for online. I really can't find anything that kind of suits the style I'm looking for as far as language classes online. So, hey, if anyone out there has got any, you know, got any yeah. contacts for like modern day Eastern, you know, Syriac, I guess it is, you know, modern day Assyrian, not Western, but Eastern. Yeah, I just call it Assyrian. Well, no, and, but now I learned there's right, a distinction. There's a, yes. What is it called? Sur, suryoyo, I think? Suryoyo, Turyoyo. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I've heard some people speak that, and I think, wow, I, that, that sounds so much different. I have no idea what they're saying. I don't either. And it's interesting because we at the Assyrian Podcast, we've had a lot of negative feedback. It's not a lot. Some negative feedback saying, why don't you guys speak more Assyrian? We want to hear a conversational Assyrian. Sure. Yeah. But actually, all Assyrians don't understand each other's dialect. Right. Yeah. Um, and the English actually is the most understood, at least under the younger generation. Yeah, kind of the lingua franca. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, a lot of the Assyrian classes that are out there, they're not designed for non-Assyrians or people who don't know any Assyrian to learn. Right. They're often designed for like someone who grew up. You, you would probably find some that you would really get something out of because you're mm -hmm. at least somewhat familiar. But if you have yeah. no familiarity, it's going to be really hard. Right. And if there is people out there that want to build out a project like that, I mean, to me, it's just a Google class, a yeah. Google classroom with like, there 25 lessons and with on, your knowledge of the google ecosystem and <laughs> we can make it happen uh, let's do it my pipeline of projects is pretty long right now okay but I, this one's pretty important you might you know might push it toward the top of the stack move it up the <laughs> priority list yeah yeah the queue so i feel like ken we've talked a lot about your by the way is, it's ken's okay or ken yeah i go by ken okay. yeah cool only my father would call me kenneth all the oh, time oh okay not when he was, he, he was almost never angry, but he would just say, we named you Kenneth, not Ken, but yeah. I go by Ken. And your dad, he passed away like a year and a half ago. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But you, when I asked you, you know, I said, uh, you know, my condolences, you, had, you said, you know, he lived a really good life. He did. Yeah. He really enjoyed himself. He knew how to enjoy himself. You know, he used to always say things like, you know, I, I'm a worrier, right? I got that from my mom. So he's always like. You know, Kenneth, honey, why do you worry about these things? You know, just enjoy yourself, basically. Don't let think, don't let anything get you down. He'd always say that. Super chill guy. Yeah, he just like had that natural disposition. I wish I had. See, that's the gene, one of those genes I wish I got from my dad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Instead, I have more of the analytical mind from my mom. And I think that causes worry about a lot of stuff. That's right. I'm always trying to fix things. You know, I do software development as part of my job. And it's always like troubleshooting, problem solving, developing something to be as efficient as possible. And not just kind of like going with the flow. Right. You know? I mean, that's the thing. If if you're an analytical right. person, I can see why anxiety would be a thing, mm -hmm. right? Or worry would be a thing. Whereas yeah. if you don't really analyze and you just kind of push forward, then yeah, you won't run into too many things. But we talked a lot about your family or you had gone to Lebanon and then you'd been to UK. So... It's interesting because you've got an American mom, you've got an Assyrian dad, mm -hmm. and you grow up in Monterey where there isn't very many, if any, Assyrians right. at that time. Yeah. You know, two two hours down the road is Turlock, mm -hmm. but 
doesn't sound like that was a regular place to visit. It was once a month when my grandparents were alive there. Yeah. Oh, okay. But you've been this person who hasn't been really connected to the Assyrian community. Right. Like you don't go to the conventions. Yeah. You... I've been to the, that convention once. I don't yeah. know. Back in the 80s. Right. I did go. Uh, so you mentioned Turlock again. And um, I, there are probably a number of people who listen to this that either live in Turlock or have visited there because of relatives. And it's my understanding. I, I asked somebody, like, why do so many Assyrians come to Turlock of all places? And if I remember correctly, someone said that it's because it reminds them of home. It's kind of hot. You have mm. hills and mountains, and the distance was kind of flat in in the area that you're yep. you're living. And I've never been to the the homeland, so to speak, so I don't know that geography well. But but that's apparently why a lot of Assyrians are there. But we would go. So when my grandparents lived there, we would go usually once a month on a weekend. But I remember one year um, I decided to go and stay with them for a summer vacation, and that's when my uh, I, both of them taught me a little bit of Assyrian. That was probably the first time I got taught a little bit of Assyrian. And I remember because you mentioned my grand, grandfather's dictionary. So he was always working on that. But we'd play chess together. He taught me how to play chess, which I think he calls shatranji. Mm-hmm. Shatranj. Or shatranj. I think of, actually that's the Farsi way of saying probably. it. Probably. They use sure. a lot of words that are from other... Because I remember like another word they would say would, would be ashpaskhana. Yeah, kitchen. For, for kitchen. But that's Farsi. That's not Assyrian. Right. And then my grandfather, he was like, uh, he, he, he was hard of hearing at the time. And he, he had these like really big uh, glasses, you know, because I think his sight was really going. So I'd have to kind of yell to talk to him. But he would, he would look, I mean, I, oh, so he was teaching me how to read and write Assyrian. So he, he taught me that. So I can still read and write, but I don't know a lot of the grammar. Mm. I know all the vowels, you know. So if and, you just uh, memorized a bunch of the words, you should be able to like pick it up. Yeah, yeah. If I knew which words are silent or letters are silent, that kind of thing, I, mm-hmm. I don't know. But uh, he he would say, um, like Kenneth, Kenneth, or something. This is the way he pronounced my name. <laughs> he uh, what what is it he used to say? Which Shazadat uh, <laughs> Nawigi, which I think means like the prince of my grandchildren. Is it? Ooh, I the first part I haven't heard, but yeah, Navigi is uh, my grandson. Yeah, so my grandchild. Yeah, so Shazadat Nawigi. So I, I learned that Shazada also was not an Assyrian word. No. But I guess it's what he used. Right. Based well, on... Well, there's been a lot of that. I'm My parents are from Iran, so there's a lot of words that they use that my friends who are Assyrian from Iraq, they don't use those words. Right. Like the word for ice, uh, I would say Qdila. Oh, yeah. Uh, but then they would say Telya. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, which me that meant snow. Right. And there's a lot I think of, in Arabic, like thalj is either mm-hmm. ice or snow as well. Yeah. Let's jump into on on your side of things. Like mm-hmm. you growing up in Monterey, when you were going to school and high school and college, did you identify as an Assyrian? What was that like for you? I, I never really identified as an Assyrian, but I had a lot of interest, especially when I was younger, in my Assyrian background. But I always kind of felt like, a bit of an outsider. I didn't look, I don't look Assyrian. Like nobody would even guess I'm from the middle. I have Middle Eastern blood in me. I just, I, again, the genes I inherited, I look like my, my skin is very fair. I got that from my mom. Uh, I don't really have like Semitic features much. So people like, there've been only maybe two people in my life said, oh yeah, you look like you could be from Lebanon or something, but Mm -hmm. most people would have no idea. So I didn't really associate that way. I was interested. I always felt like I'm kind of an outsider. Like if I were to show up to, you know, with a group of Assyrians, I think, well, who's this guy? You know, I, a lot of that's in my own thinking. 
But um, no, yeah, because um, Assyrians have a lot of diversity in terms of what they actually present, what they look like. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, in my eyes, I didn't. I when I first met you, I didn't think twice. I thought, oh yeah, he could. To- he totally looks. He could be Assyrian. But if you didn't, if you didn't know we're meeting for the sake of you know meeting each other, yeah, as being Assyrian, you, I wouldn't like be you would you. Back. No, but I mean, if you I saw me, if you saw it, me somewhere, you wouldn't guess it. No, that's the things, yeah. No, but after so, talking to you, I I can sense some of it. Yeah, okay, but yeah, so I never really felt like a like I was part of the community. I mean, I'd go to these friends of the family's house. We we had, in particular, one family here in the area that were had first they come from Iraq and they were then in Turlock, and then my dad helped them, I think, to get jobs, also teaching Arabic at DLI. And so they actually came and lived with us initially for, I don't know, a couple of months or something. Again, when I was very young, and then they got their own house and then their mother joined them and rest of the family, they have still a lot of family in Turlock. So, you know, I really loved them and I, I, they'd invite us over for dinner quite often. So most of the Assyrian food I've eaten in my life has been thanks to them. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, to some degree, my grandparents and when I visited my aunt and uncle, but in, in London, but that, you know, we were only there for short periods of time. So I felt fine with them. But still, I always felt like, almost like you have imposter syndrome or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I feel like I feel a lot easier, more comfortable speaking Japanese because I was there for a while and I learned it to a conversational level. And it's like, even though I'm not Japanese, uh, somehow I just felt like this is something I've done on my own. Nobody would expect me to look at me to expect me to, to speak any Japanese. Right. But if I'm known to be like, I'm from an Assyrian background, I show up with a group of Assyrians and oh, oh, he, he doesn't even speak the language. I feel like, yeah, you know. Why were you in Japan? That's a whole other story. Yeah. You want to talk about that now? Or? Yeah. All right. Well, that all has to do with science fiction, actually, originally. So I'm a big nerd. I guess it's cool to say that these days. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I grew up, you know, reading comic books and... Um, Ninja Turtles? No, I was never into Ninja Turtles. Like Superman? Like what were the comics? Yeah, like... Okay, so the first comic that got me into uh, comics to begin with, and I think, I think Marvel's... I don't think they've officially announced it, but I think there's rumors it's going to be on their whatever phase five of the MCU or whatnot. Is Nova? Mm-hmm. It's very cool. Never I, heard of it. Okay, go check it out. You can get on the line and check it out. Um, he he was the first one that got me into it. So I like that character a lot. He's Marvel, obviously. And then another character I liked a lot was on DC side named Green Lantern. Yeah, that movie was kind of you know it wasn't the best. Unfortunately, it wasn't actually that bad, but it wasn't the best. But I really liked that character as well. And then another one that was really influential on me when I was young was called The Teen Titans. And it was just, I liked the stories I was reading. Of course, I was very young at the time, but, but it actually taught me a little bit about Greek mythology that I ended up getting really interested in. So I ended up on my own learning a lot more about Greek mythology, but I wouldn't have done that had I not read that comic. And I, uh, later on, actually when I was young, at some point I did meet the uh, writer and illustrator of the comic. And then years later, there's a guy here locally who's a friend of mine. We've known each other since since I was in high school, even though we didn't go to the same high school, who owns a comic and toy shop. He and his brother used to own a, uh, a series of them here in the peninsula. That friend of mine eventually did coloring work on, on different comics, including the comic that the uh, Avengers Infinity War movie was based on, the two-parter. It was called The Infinity Gauntlet, I think, with Thanos in it. He, that, so this guy that, that uh, wrote and, um, and illustrated the comics, the New Teen Titans, when I was a kid, he did, the, the I think, the story and the inking of it. And the friend of mine colored the, the, the cover, which is pretty cool. That is cool. 
But anyway, so I, I read a lot of comics. I watched a lot of, you know, TV shows. I loved Star Trek growing up. So I'm a Trekkie or mm-hmm. Trekker of the, you know, what they call TOS. So it's the original series. And then when I got into the, in the college, the next generation came out. So I watched that and I like I like that as well. They have a lot of newer series now and I watch them all because they're Star Trek, but I'm uh, I'm not quite as into them as I was the older series. Um, so there was that. But the reason I ended up eventually moving to Japan was because there was a show uh, on weekday afternoons called Captain Cosmic mm. uh, in the area. It was on Channel 2 in the Bay Area. And it was the same guy who had something on, on Saturday nights called Creature Features. And on Creature Features, they'd play full-length movies and mainly horror movies. But some of them were Japanese, like Godzilla mm-hmm. and Gamera and Rodan, all these things. So I ended up liking Godzilla and Gamera quite a bit. But then he had this other show where he'd introduce, it was a half-hour thing every day of the week uh, or weekdays, where he'd have all these uh, mainly Japanese either anime shows or live-action ones. And so I liked the majority of the ones I saw in there, but the one that was the favorite of mine was Ultraman. I just like was enamored of Ultraman. <laughs> I couldn't wait to get home after school. I was like in first sixth grade, like first year of uh, junior high school. I remember I'd get on the bus from school to get back to my grandmother's house in time to watch the show. And and he had all these powers, and I don't know if you're familiar with I Ultraman. I do not but, know Ultraman. I know well, like Mega Man and lots oh, of yeah? different... Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a number of them. Yeah. But so, again, when I was that age, it was either my mom or dad, I forget which one now, took me to San Francisco to Japantown, and they have a pretty famous bookstore there called Kinokuniya. And they had a whole you know bunch of kids' books, and a lot of them were Ultraman books, kind of the special format, kind of hard hard paper books, like cardboard almost. I don't know, whoever it was, my mom or dad was kind enough to, to buy me a few of these. And then when we went to pay for them, one of the, whoever the clerk was at the register was kind of, one of these books had a centerfold because they, I, I didn't realize that Ultraman had a whole family. Mm. I, was like, I was even that much more excited. And so the, the clerk translated all the names that were written next to each of the characters into English. I was like, wow, no, no, I got to be able to read the rest of these books. You know, it's all kids Japanese, mm-hmm. but I was like, well, I couldn't read any of it. So then my mom said, well, okay, there is a Japanese uh, language school you can go to. It's run by a group called JACL, Japan American Citizens League. And she grew up with some Japanese Americans. And so some of them were sending their kids to the school. So she said, why don't you go and try the school? And she told me later she just thought I'd go once and I I wouldn't have any more interest. But I ended up sticking with it, mainly because I made some friends there. Unfortunately, I didn't learn a lot of actual Japanese from it. I ended up going there for, I think, uh, maybe four years, five years in total until I graduated from high school. It was just Saturday mornings, but I had no one to practice with outside of the school where they all had, you know, they're from Japanese families or expats or something. So they have people to practice with and do the homework and whatnot. But I think what I, the one benefit I got out of really was other than making some friends there was developing an ear for the language. So then when I got to college, uh, I went and studied um, computer engineering at Santa Clara University. And I was able to test out of a few classes up there. So I, um, that engineering curriculum was really packed, but I was able to get two free electives now. And I chose to take the two you know, elementary Japanese classes at the college level. Mm-hmm. And there I actually started to learn some of the basics of it. And so what I did was I bought all the books in the series. It was from the Hawaii Press. And uh, we only went through like through the first half of the first book in those two elementary classes. And then I applied for a, uh, a, a job in this initiative called it was the JET program. It's, they still have it. And that's the one that stands for Japan Exchange and Teaching Program. And so the only requirements were you're interested to go to Japan and you're a, you're a native speaker of English and that you have a degree in something. 
And so I matched all of those criteria. So I ended up getting the job. And they don't tell you where in Japan you're going to go. You can't choose. Everyone would want to go to Tokyo probably. But they say, okay, if you accept, then we'll tell you where you're going. So I, I accepted immediately. And then they told me this place I was going to go. It's called, um, it, it was a city in an area called Gumma Prefecture, which is about two hours north, uh, it was the northeast, I think, of, of Tokyo. So I could get to Tokyo if I wanted to by like a two-hour train ride. So it was really, that, that was the progression to getting to Japan. But the other main interest I had, well, one was, I'm going to go to the homeland of Ultraman and Godzilla and all this stuff. Yeah. I had grown up, you know, loving watching that stuff. And then also I studied computers. And I love science fiction. It's like, if you're going to go any to any other country outside of the States that, that kind of encompasses all those things, right. it would at that time, it would have been Japan. Mm-hmm. And so it just made perfect sense. And so I went and did that. And I was only planning to stay there for a couple of years. So I did the first year teaching English, but I know I didn't want to do that professionally. So while I was teaching, I actually interviewed with a um, software development company that was in Tokyo. And I got their information back from the university. So I remember going to Tokyo, I interviewed with them, and within a few days, they said they'd like to hire me. So, you know, I was ecstatic. I was going to be able to stay in Japan and do actual computer programming work, which is what I was you know, thinking I would do professionally. But I always had this interest in doing, you know, like special effects. So I had to come back to the States for them to switch the visa, and it took them a long time to do it. They had to switch it from an instructor visa for English uh, to an engineer mm. visa. It took like 10 months or something. So while I was back here in the States, uh, I just started to try and learn how to do uh, programming on the Mac OS platform at the time, which is different than now. They had, another, again, like this set of tomes of books. It was like called the, the Toolbox, I think. Because when I went to school, we studied on uh, you know, MS-DOS and uh, Unix a little bit. Yeah. Were you learning how to code in Japanese? Like the No, it's okay. all English, yeah. All, all oh, computer programming. Even in ja- Japan, they're using English? Yeah. Typing yeah, yeah. and everything. Yeah, yeah. So they, they, you can put in, con, you know, in coding, you put comments. Yes. So sometimes they put comments in English. That's so fascinating. So you mean like all those games we played growing up, like Nintendo games or whatever, the back end coding for it was in English? Yeah. What language? Uh, C at the time. Wow. Yeah. Man, but. Oh, and Assembler. A lot of Assembler. Because they're so doing stuff on a very low level with, you know, what do you call like low level device driver level kind of stuff they have to do as well. So I, I, I didn't do the actual game develop so i so i i was uh i worked for this company developing macintosh software mm-hmm. mainly for database related Here in stuff the no no this is in japan oh, okay this was that job i got in tokyo yeah so i did that for about a year and a half and then while i was doing that again like i mentioned i, I really what i wanted to do was somehow do special effects and sorry i keep jumping around a little bit here and there but when back when i was in high school and even like junior high school to high school, along with his interest in science fiction, I really wanted to become uh, like a special effects model maker. Because, you know, I love, again, Star Trek. Star Wars obviously was a big, I forgot to mention, I don't know how I forgot to mention that. Yeah. Uh, so Star Wars was a huge influence. But I love the Enterprise from Star Trek and then the Millennium Falcon from Star Wars and X-Wings and whatnot. But I remember uh, what I'd really like to do, I wasn't very good at painting the models, but I really liked to do was light them up. So I just like things that glow, basically. Light, you know, all the little pinpoint <laughs> lights. Another series was Battlestar Galactica. Yes. And the folks who worked on the original Star Wars film, a, a group of them went on and did the effects for Battlestar Galactica, the original TV series back in the 80s. But anyway, so, uh, so I was really into building these model kits, but adding lights and fiber optics. I remember learning about fiber optics and thinking that was so cool. You have like one light source and you have these like little hair thin, little almost like, like little noodles, like little glass, you know, bendable noodles. And you would, you would 
you would drill little holes into the like the hull of the ship and you put it in there and use like a hairdryer to apply just enough heat that it flares the lens and gets it to stick there and you collect them all to a to like a central location inside the model where you have a little light and then it just like transmits the light 100 percent to all these little pinpoints and then leds and put them in there and buy like little timer chips from radio shack back in the day and somehow like work it all out to get it all set up and like a little battery pack and i, I love doing that so I, I i thought that's what i want to do and i was reading like uh these magazines called Starlog. And there's another one which was really influential. It's called Cinefix that came out when I was, you know, pretty young. And that had like really detailed articles. And I didn't read a lot of all the text, but I they had so many behind the scenes pictures. And you kind of see what these people are working on, read the descriptions of those pictures. So I got really into it. But then when I was in high, uh, maybe like uh, a couple of years, maybe as a sophomore or something in high school, computers, personal computers were just coming out. Right. And so they had these Radio Shack TRS 80s, which we call trash 80s. Mm. And, uh, and yeah, because they were kind of cheap. But I took the first, they offered basic, pro, you know, like the mm-hmm. basic language. And so I remember studying that and like think, oh, this is awesome. And I thought to myself, well, if I can kind of marry the two interests where I could do what became known as computer graphics, to do all that model making, but to do it in such a way that I don't have to physically house anything yeah. and use like smelly glue and all that kind of stuff. And on the computer, you have undo and you can go back and do things. And it's just like a lot more creative possibilities when, there. When you say model making, in my mind, it's um, and, and in the context of lighting, mm-hmm. what I'm hearing, because obviously I don't have any background in any of this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've done a little bit of Photoshop. You yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> uh, I used to color uh, coloring books growing yeah, up. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> but so when I hear uh, you say like that, you did model making and around lighting, I think of the ability to repeat an effect a lighting effect that's very unique because mm-hmm. of those movies, Star Wars, Star Trek, those shows and all, all that stuff. Like they did, they probably, they probably required really unique uh, experiences, right? Yeah. So you went from, Hey, I'm taking physical objects. I know how to manipulate these physical objects and so mm-hmm. do some really weird, cool stuff. Yeah. And somehow then you said, wait a second, what if I can create an array with coding programming that would then make this appear on a screen mm-hmm. that that's sort of what i'm hearing yeah uh, mm-hmm. in layman's terms basically do the model making but do it digitally yeah yeah so that was a, a, that's what i was thinking and the thing that really kind of congealed it and probably gave me this idea to begin with was i remember there's a show again it's all back in the 80s it was called uh, the young sherlock holmes and it's a very famous scene i think it's one of the first examples of computer graphics and mass media and tv in this case where there's this stained glass, there's a knight in the stained glass window, and it it jumps out of the window and comes to life. It, you know, it's in a church, and it, it like pulls a sword out and starts to do some kind of battle with the priest or something. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, that's awesome, you know. Uh, <laughs> that's it. I'm I'm gonna do that. Uh, you, you were like everyone else was like, whoa, I'm gonna have nightmares tonight. But Ken was like, <laughs> I'm actually gonna learn how they did that. Yeah, that was super super exciting for me. But I really wanted to do it more with spaceships and that kind of thing as opposed to what's called character animation now. But yeah, so that was kind of where that interest really started. And it later, I don't think it was called visual effects at the time. It was CGI, I guess, and whatnot. So the whole time I've been doing the computer programming and and this kind of interest in Japan, this company I was working at doing that Mac OS stuff, 
they had because they had Macintosh computers. They had like uh, early day Macromedia was the name of the yeah, company. Yeah. Then it was, I think it got bought by Adobe, became you know uh, Adobe. But before that, they had something called Macromedia Director, and they had a language called Lingo. And so that was like a script. That was the first scripting language I saw. So I was doing I was programming in C, and this is when Apple Events was first introduced. And so I was learning about that, those APIs, and how I could do stuff to communicate with the uh, database software using all that. But it, after work at night, I would stay late and I would start to learn Macromedia Director and this lingo language. And it was really cool, the stuff you could do at the time. And then they also had, they had, it, it was Premiere, I guess. Uh, so I don't know if it was Adobe at the time already or it was still a Macromedia product. Learn a little bit about video editing, that kind of thing. And then, okay, so this is another little side story, but there's one woman I was dating at the time. I had told her about Ultraman that I loved that and whatnot. And so one day she told me, uh, she said, hey, our office moved. And so I forgot which part of the city they're in, but they ended up moving to an area in an area called Shibuya, which is really popular for young people in, in Tokyo. It's one of the like, suburbs of Tokyo. They got a lot of them there. And she said, I saw this sign that said uh, Tsuburaya Eizou. And Tsuburaya is the name of the man and the company that made all the Ultraman mm-hmm. shows. And he was... He was kind of like the the special effects wizard behind uh, Godzilla and, and whatnot. So she said, "You know, you, you want to go have a look?" And I said, "Yeah, sure." You know, yeah. so <laughs> we went on a Saturday, and uh, we went to the. You know, she guided us to where it was, and sure enough, there's the sign. It was on the second floor, and I remember that the lights were on. So I thought, "Oh, it's Saturday, and the lights are on." And so I told her, "I said, do you mind if I just go and knock on the door?" She goes, "Oh, I'll wait here." So I went upstairs and knocked on the door. It takes a minute. Someone comes and answers, and they're like, they're probably thinking. Well, who is this gaijin? That's what they call foreigners, gaikokujin or gaijin. And I said, in my in my simple Japanese at the time, I said, uh, I'm a huge Ultraman fan. And the guy's like, oh, come on in, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I go in there, and this is like a dream for me already. And he sits me down, he brings me coffee or whatever, and we start talking. I mean, again, my Japanese was, was, was just starting out then. So I don't remember how well we even communicated with whatever English he was able to speak as well. But before I knew it, it was already like half an hour, 45 minutes have passed. I said, oh my God, my girlfriend's outside. I hope she's still there. So I, I, I went down and she was still there. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry, but give me a few more minutes. And she goes, that's fine. And so basically I got his business card after that. And I, he started inviting me to uh, meetings he would have with, and I'm thinking, wow, this is unbelievable. Yeah, He's actually inv- inviting me to meetings that he's having with clients to work on a new Ultraman series is what it was for. And I say, I cannot yeah. believe this is happening. And uh, he was he wanted my perspective on things as an American and the fact that I grew up watching the original Ultraman. And he wanted input on like, uh, what, what would a good name be and all these kind of things. So I, I remember that for this particular new character, Ultraman, is his body, his costume, but it's really his, his body is uh, mainly silver and red. Mm-hmm. But he said this one was going to be mainly black or dark. And he was going to be able to become invisible and do other things. And so I, I remember thinking hard about it. And I remember, ooh, you know what would be a cool name is Stealth. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so I remember going and, and kind of, quote, pitching it to him. And in Japanese, it would be pronounced like Sterisu and, uh, instead of Stealth. And so I don't know if it just didn't sound right to him or whatever, but they didn't go for that name or remember that. But I just thought the whole fact that he's asking me for my yeah. input. But one day, he's, you know, he invited me to another one of these meetings can be for this show. And so I, I show up there and these two other guys come in they're also pretty young and uh it ends up that one of those those two guys are from another company one of them is the president or ceo of it and the oddest thing happens so i'm sitting in this meeting we're talking about this ultraman show 
And then when we're all done, this CEO guy who had come to visit say, hey, what, what do you, it was, this again, it was like a Saturday. He said, what are you doing from now? And I said, oh, I don't have any particular plans. And he's like, oh, you want to come to my next meeting? It's also now that he's inviting me to yet now I'm going with this, this guy to another meeting. You're now talk, part of his entourage. To talk about a video game product. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up doing that. And then he took me out to dinner. And, you know, like in Japan, they had all these hostess clubs and things like that. I mean, this, he, would, he had his favorite one he would go to. They all knew him. And so he, we went to a nice dinner. And they took me there. And they're serving all these drinks and whatnot. And so he, we, we started, like, you know, hanging out for, for I don't Is know. Is this guy an months. executive for Ultraman? No, no. This guy had his own company. So they were they would work help mainly graphics of one sort or another, but they also the thing that was interesting is it dawned on me that they were kind of like a small version of ILM, which is Industrial Light and Magic, mm-hmm. which is where near where I work now, which I grew up loving because they they were the company that was put together to make the original Star Wars film, and they've worked on all the films since then and a whole bunch of other movies, a lot of awards and things. They're in the Presidio in San Francisco, but this was like a small version of that company where they would make. Not only like things that were related to anime and live action, uh, like TV commercials they would work on where they had to build suits and things. They would make monster suits, kaiju suits. You know, <laughs> a lot of people know the word kaiju now, which means monster in Japanese. And so I was like, wow, this is great. If I can get in here. And again, my main interest was the computer graphics. So he, they had three high-end graphics workstations that were relatively new at the time. And they were using like a Japanese computer graphics animation product, rendering and animation software. And I thought, well, this is really my my foot in the door for this, and so, so I, I I kept like you know hanging out with him and and helping him out with this and that, and then that the idea was that I would get some time to work on those machines, but in reality, he told me, well, I have you know already artists working on them. You're free to use them in the middle of the night when they're not being used, but they got a lot of work they're doing. So I thought, huh, all right. And then then the other thing he was really interested in was expanding his business into other parts of Asia. And he wanted my help with English in these other countries and doing some translation between English and Japanese. And so even though that sounded kind of cool, that's not what I wanted to do at the time. And he, he invited me to his wedding, and he wanted me to give a short speech in Japanese. He's probably putting the, the foreign guy you know, you know, up there as the token foreign guy speaking some Japanese. Yeah. So I did that, and then shortly after, these two other Japanese guys approached me and asked me, like, oh, who am I? Where did I learn Japanese? What, what, what do you do? And not... We're from Sega. Wow. And I was like, oh, all right. And the other thing was my mom, she's always very supportive of my interests and whatnot. So, you know, this is, again, this is like in the early 90s. She would send me newspaper clippings and articles that she thought I would find interesting. And one of them I did find really interesting was uh, an article about the software that was used in the first Jurassic Park movie to do the dinosaurs. It was called Soft Image. And uh, I had never heard a name of like, a major animation software package that was used in any of these films that had come out by that point. Right. So this is the first time I had I had a name to work with. And so when I met these guys from Sega, they just happened to say, well, they use something called Soft Image to, to, to do all the uh, the graphics for the games and the TV commercials and whatnot that they're working oh, they, on. they mentioned it and you had read that in an yeah. article from so, your mom. Yeah, so I, you know, and and they offered, uh, you know, to have me come over. I said, yeah, you know. <laughs> I, again, it was like one of those points. Where I just couldn't believe this is like all the stars are lining up. And so I did go over and sure enough, they had that software. I'd never seen it before. I was like, wow, this is awesome. You know, they had these, again, like the, like the guy at the company that asked me to his wedding. Yeah. They had you know, a bunch of these high-end graphics workstations. But they but, were asking you to maybe work on them. Well, not yet. They just invited me to come and have oh, a look okay, to see, okay. you know. And uh, But then when I was there, they were saying, well, you know, are you interested in working here? 
And I said, uh, yes, you know. And I knew the other guy wanted me to, to work for him, but, you know, I, I, was, I wasn't going to pass this opportunity. So uh, they You're had like, me. Thanks for inviting me to your wedding. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I really got to go to Sega now. Yep. So I remember they had me come in, interview with a few people. Basically, they, they wanted to see if I could speak enough Japanese to, like, communicate with a few different key people in the department. And then they had me take a test, and it had to do with some kind of like pattern matching thing. I don't remember exactly now, but I think, ooh, God, I hope I passed this thing. But I, apparently I passed, and they made me an offer, and so I, I immediately took it. But I just couldn't believe I got in there. And then, again, I don't know, this is not really related to the Assyrian part, but... Hey, man, I'm having fun just geeking out with you. Okay, that's cool. Um, yeah. I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and I knew like friends had Sonic the Hedgehog, mm-hmm. and there was other Sega games that were... Taking yeah. off. So Sega is like a major. Brand, oh, yeah, yeah. It was know? huge. Yeah, um, yeah. It was the only real competitor to Nintendo, which everyone knows Nintendo. Yeah. And it's funny. I think Nintendo started as a card company. Yes. And Sega, do you know what Sega stands for? No. I didn't learn this until years after I worked there. But Sega's that, like, so the Japanese, they, they, they often combine multiple words into a single word by taking elements of different words. And they do that with Chinese characters. I think that's where, how they, where, where that idea comes from. But it's, it was originally called Service Games. And so they, like, the service is S-E and then G-A from games and be, made Sega. Very interesting. Those and, are American words or yeah, English words. Yeah. Well, they use a lot of English words for Got things, it. especially in games and computers. But if I remember correctly, it was actually started by an American in Japan and then somehow then became fully a Japanese company. Interesting. Yeah. So anyway, so I, I, I took the job there and I actually joined a group, a division. And I don't know for anyone who's interested in games or Sega of the 90s. I joined a division called AM3. And so they had these, AM stood for amusement. And they had like AM1 to AM8, I think it was. The most famous one was AM2 because they had come out with the series of games these Virtua Fighter games. They, they were really famous and really popular. And so the very when, when the week I joined Sega was the week before that Virtua Fighter game came out. So before it was ever introduced in the arcade, they had you know they had dev machines in mm-hmm. the in the building, but they had one completed one on the first floor in the lobby of that. I, I worked in the headquarters there, up on like the eighth floor or <laughs> you something. You worked in the headquarters of Sega in Japan. Yeah, yeah, in yeah. The nineties. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Man, that is wild. So Sega was really fun, obviously. And I joined a group that was uh, not doing games initially. They were supposed to, they were doing like experience, like uh, location-based entertainment, mm-hmm. I guess it's called, you know, now. Things like rides for amusement parks and that kind of thing. So I actually, I started working on an experience, a ride. It's much like what Star Tours is in Disneyland. And uh, there was like, it'd be a platform. A number of people would sit on it. And it would be, it's based on Hedge, uh, Sonic the Hedgehog. And Sonic would be running down some path. And basically the, the path forks. And then you go to the left or right. And then he'll run around something else. Another fork comes up. So the idea was we were prototyping this to present, you know, to the, the powers that be. And so I wrote the software. And this was cool because I was learning now how to, how to write code on Unix machines. Mm-hmm. It was called Irix at the time because it was the Unix variant used by Silicon Graphics workstations. That's what they had. These were the high end at the time graphics, you know, computers. And so we use this, this uh, Softimage software they were using to, to do all the, like the 3D modeling for um, Sonic and the, and the environment and whatnot. And then my task was to write some software that would control it all. 
And so basically I wrote software. There was, I don't know, about 10 people in our group. And we're all in like classic Japan style. You're all sitting in these desks right next to each other. There's no dividers or anything like that. And so I wrote the software that would have like a, a client that have like a daemon and there would be a client on each of these machines. Mm-hmm. And then the, one of them would be the master. And basically you have a little graphical thing that would come up. So I remember learning about actually coding 3D graphics that would appear on the screen in real time, basically, you know, essentially. There'd be little right, right and left arrows. I think I made one red and one blue. And then you would hit the arrow keys on the, on the physical keyboard. And if you wanted to go left or right, you just keep hitting the key. You want to go to which direction. And on your own screen, the relative size of the arrow would increase or decrease based on how, based on the actually the aggregate I see. Uh, of, yeah. of all of the, the members. So you can right. see it going back and forth and you're trying to get it to go your direction. And it does that for a few seconds. And then whichever one won out, it would then via another API would talk to a machine called an Abacus, which is a mm-hmm. video playback machine that I don't think they're around anymore. But And it would tell it, uh, we would have the different, pre-rendered sequences to go left or right and then it would it would you know select that one and play that one back and so that was pretty cool i learned a lot doing that but then they they didn't they decided not to go with that that project and so that got canceled we all got disbanded we're still in the same am3 department but then they had me start writing software tools for the different games teams in the in the department that are working on these different games and so one cool thing that kind of came out of all of that was i ended up being the voice of a game that became really popular this game Sega Rally Championship. So I did the voice for that game. Sega Rally Championship. There's one other friend of mine who does one line in it, and then I do everything else. And they had a number of us that were uh, native English speakers there record for that. And I think it was just meant to be used as a temp like temp tracks. And I, I think I heard them talking about they would hire actual voice talent to do the real ones. But in the end, they told me they're going to use me and, and then that one line from the friend yeah. of mine. I thought, wow, this is so cool, you know. So they ended up doing that and then, uh, you know, that got into the game. And then the the head of the uh, of my group said, hey, the, the game's become popular enough. They're going to release a music CD from the game because they have their own sound department. They do all the music for the games, the sound effects and all that. But they were going to hire a popular rock band at the time there to re-record all the, the tracks from the game, I think. And then they were going to do a new like theme track. And then he wanted me to write English lyrics for it. But I thought, okay, again, this is, this is quite cool. Mm-hmm. And I think he gave me about a week or so. And he said, let's meet on this coming Sunday at the office. And I remember doing that. And I remember I, I, I thought I really came up with some good lyrics. You know, you have a chorus and verses and I, the rhyme scheme and the whole thing. And it kind of really made sense. Because I, I remember when living in Japan, you know, I'd listen to a lot of Japanese music and they'd always have to have some English in there somewhere and it never made any sense really. You know, how does that happen? They can't even make any sense out of the English they put in there. And so I went in and uh, we spent a couple of hours going over the lyrics I'd come up with. And, you know, the, my, my boss at the time was like, well, probably said, well, the Japanese might not understand this or maybe this doesn't sound so good to the Japanese ear or whatever it was. By the time we were done with it, I was like, okay, now I understand what happens. <laughs> But uh, but still, it was fun to work on. He credited me and uh, on the CD, and so that that, that was. Do you a lot have a Sega Genesis now? Oh, I never owned the the home units. It's all never... for arcades, yeah. big arcade oh, games. Oh, okay. So that was the other thing that's kind of cool. I also got my voice in this other game by the other group, the more popular AM2 group that did the Virtual Fighter games. I did the voice, one of the voices for the Virtual Cop game. Okay, Virtual Cop. That one's a very popular like arcade game. 
Yeah, well, it was at the time. Yeah, I actually recently saw Virtual Cop at. Oh really? A, yes, I went to uh, the Pinball Museum in Las Vegas. Oh okay. And and I saw Virtual Cop there. Oh wow. <laughs> So if you're in Vegas, go check it out. You might hear your own voice from yeah. your twenties. Uh, yeah, so. that. Yeah, I'll I'll have to remember that. Yeah. So. But one last yeah. comment I'll make about that was, I had one of those kind of like moments in life. I figured I got to remember this, and that is when uh, I'm pretty sure it was around Halloween time because we went to this a friend of mine, another American friend actually from Sega. We went out to do like you know, get in a costume and go out and have fun. You know, so we went to this area of Tokyo called Fungi. And that's, again, like all the young people go there. So uh, we went out there and we had dinner somewhere. And then we went to change into our costumes. We had didn't have them on already. We went into the, the Sega had an art, like a multi-story arcade there. I think it was called Gigo. And so we get in there. And I remember we go up the escalators because the bathrooms are on the second floor. So we're going to go in there to change. Honestly, now I can't remember whether it was the Sega rally racing game or it was the um, virtual cop game. But it was whatever, whichever okay. game it was, it had just come out. And when we got up the escalator to the left, it was just like a wall lined with probably like at least 10 of these games. And some of them are idling, some are being played. And I just like, I'm hearing my voice coming out of these games really loud wow. in this arcade in Ropungi, Japan. As I'm going in to change into a Halloween costume, I'm thinking, I got to remember this moment. This, this kind of thing is never going to happen again to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of like every teenage every teenager's dream to be in that video game and man here we are however many years later and it's still a thing yeah it's it is interesting not so much virtual cop i guess but with rally there is some kind of like fan following and Mm. every every so many years like every 10 years on average or so something pops up and somebody contacts me you know now it's a lot easier with social media i'm on different social media sites or email youtube and other things and they'll reach out and say, hey, are you the guy who did the voice for that? And I think part of this happened within the last year. Somebody's taken it upon himself. He's a visual effects artist to use the um, Unreal Engine to try to recreate the rally game from the time, but to do it with modern technology. And so he got in touch with me and was wondering whether I would reenact the, the voice for it. You know, I said, oh, yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. Um, so I think maybe he has a certain following, and maybe some people saw that That's there and they reached out that to me and whatnot. He found you. Yeah, yeah. Hey, question. What's your dad saying while you're in Japan? Is he like, why is my son in Japan? Or is he happy for you? Are you yeah. guys talking very much about any of it? <laughs> Bruni, when are you coming home? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. No, I think I kind of felt like I was doing what my dad did, mm-hmm. you know? And he ended up staying in the foreign country the rest of his life, right? Right. But I'd come home every Christmas, and after Sega, I ended up joining a company called Alias Wavefront. That that company, Silicon Graphics, had made these high-end workstations. They bought two of the prevailing animation software companies called Alias and Wavefront, and they merged them together to make it Alias Wavefront. And so I ended up joining them and helping them to build out their business in, in Asia. So Tokyo was the headquarters of their uh, Asia-Pacific you know, operations, but their actual headquarters were in Toronto. And the headquarters of the parent company, Silicon Graphics, was in Mountain View mm-hmm. here in, in California. So you transferred? I didn't transfer, but I started... Tra- this is one of the things I was super excited about, again, moving to this company, was that I'd learn more about the business side of it, and I started doing business travel. And so on almost a monthly basis, we'd be traveling somewhere, and oftentimes back to North America, either to, the, to Mountain View or to Toronto. 
And regardless of which one it was, whenever I did that trip, I'd always arrange to, to stay over a night back home here in mm-hmm. the Pacific Grove. Because it's like, uh, from San Francisco Airport, SFO, it's only about an hour and a half. So I, w- I would see my, my parents and my brother, you know, a few times a year. Well, maybe, I don't know, six, seven times a year. And then I'd come home for Christmas usually. I, I get the sense just over our kind of last hour together when I hear your story, you're very much someone who's always exploring, always listening, wondering, watching, pursuing your dreams and having fun. And your progression was quite fascinating because you literally went from someone who's seeing material things and how to orchestrate them and bring them together uh, to also having this interest in programming and coding. And you went to school for that. You end up in Japan doing some work that teaching you didn't really wasn't really your thing. You get a job. You meet this guy because you knocked on a door (laughs) randomly And then from there, you go to his wedding and you meet people from Sega and they have you working on like you do the really cool voice stuff. And then you did some project, but like a lot of those projects, the company didn't end up moving too much forward with like they didn't become Mm -hmm. their kind of main headliners or whatever. Yeah, not that original project I was hired to do. Yeah, not the original project. But even as you were explaining the experience you were getting of being in a community of people or being... Uh, with a bunch of users and Mm -hmm. watching those users manipulate something physical in order to then see something Mm -hmm. digital happen. Right. Um, This was like the birth of this interactive experience that for us is like common today. Yeah. But at that time. Yeah, not at that time. This was all breaking through. This is all brand new. You have to put it into perspective. Yeah, all these things I'm discussing are things when I was younger. So back in the, uh, you know, mid 80s to, to mid 90s, really. But it's actually fascinating because it seems to me like there's a lot of interest in the 80s and 90s right now. And I don't know if it's just consumer based because like uh, the kids are grown up and they know that'll sell. But like even the show Stranger Things. Yeah. It's really cool how there is like so much interesting thought on that. Yeah. If nothing else, it's never ceased to amaze me that, you know, wherever you go, some restaurant, you know, some store, wherever you go, they're you always hear 80s music. Mm-hmm. Not always, but uh, I mean, you, you never stop hearing it. Yeah. At least maybe once a week or something. I'm thinking, wow, it's really kind of prevailed. Uh, maybe it's the same for 90s music. I just don't know it as well because I was living in Japan during most of the 90s. So it's kind of out of touch here with, with the music scene. But just 80s music is still popular. You know, I mean, that's when synthesizers and drum machines were first being used. And that's a whole nother topic because mm-hmm. I got really into that and I still do it. And I try to, you know, every few years try to reinvigorate myself to make more music. But uh, yeah, there's something about the 80s. And then you mentioned Stranger Things. I will, I will give this little, hopefully quick story. So, you know, I, I so got the first job in high school with some friends of mine. With Was the, it at the Hawkins Lab? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So we got the first jobs in high school with, with, with the, the focus on making money to buy some music gear to make a band. And so we actually went and got the jobs. We all got jobs at some kind of a restaurant. I was a busboy at a, at a local restaurant at Lover's Point. It was called the Tinnery Restaurant. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so we all made enough money. We finally started buying gear. And the first two pieces of gear I bought were, one is like very well known now. It's called the, uh, it's the, it's Roland makes it. And it's called the TR-808. In fact, my hat today I'm wearing, you can't see this on the, uh, you know, listeners out there, but the hat says 808. This is Roland. So that's a very famous drum machine. It's pre-MIDI, if anyone knows yeah. what MIDI is, Musical Instrument Digital Interface, for syncing 
different, uh, you know, different machines together. Um, and I bought something called the Insonic Mirage. It was the, the again, this is back in the eighties. It was the first prosumer level digital sampling keyboard. And I was really big into digital sampling and the 808 because of all the music I was listening to was just like electro funk kind of stuff back in the eighties. There was a record label called Tommy Boy Records, and I listened to a lot of stuff on that label, another one called Prelude. But there's a guy named Arthur Baker and John Roby, and they did the music for a bunch of different groups, namely one called Soul Sonic Force. And if people don't know what that is, their first track, which became super popular, was called Planet Rock. I just fell in love with those sounds. And um, a good friend of mine in high school, his father was a famous musician. He was a boarding student at the high schools in Pebble Beach. It was called RLS, or, or Robert Louis Stevenson School. And so we'd go sometimes on the weekend to his dad's place, and we'd unearth things. Basically, his dad had all kinds of older musical gear under sheets, bed sheets. We'd pull the sheets off and plug it in. And, you know, I'll say, thank God. My, my friend said, hey, I found my dad's drum machine. Come on over and let's check it out. I was saying, please. I mean, I mean, honestly, I'm not very religious myself. But I was like, well, it's one of those moments like, please, God, let it be yeah. this this machine that I'm hearing in all these songs. And sure enough, it was. I could not believe it. It was the TR-808. So, um, so I ended up buying one myself from another guy at, at school for 500 bucks at the time. And, and now, all these years later, apparently, they, they go for anywhere from like 10 to 20 grand or something. Wow. I'll never sell it, though. This is like a, a museum piece almost. But so we, we got these jobs, bought all the music gear to to make a band, but we we did very little as a band. And then I just started making music as a hobby, like a little MIDI studio at home. Very cool. Did yeah. any of it appear on Stranger Things? No. Oh, but the, yeah, yeah. Good. good. You, you brought it back there. I like to yeah. so get off on these tangents. <laughs> but so the thing that was really cool is one of this one 80s track I really liked a lot was Running Up That Hill by mm -hmm. Kate Bush. And so it's really funny that all these years later, such an amazing story, the writers, you know, decide to use it in there. I think they must have spoken with her and say, hey, is this so cool and whatnot. And now she's, you know, she's gone to the top of the charts again, like 40 years later. Right. And it's made like millions of dollars. But here's here's like the part of that really interested me. So I love the song, this the, like the main sound that's the melodic sound. And so I always thought it was a sampled voice because some of that electro funk music I was listening to, they did sample voices, like people pronouncing the vowels for a song and like playing them as an instrument. Right. Because I knew that they had the technology to do that. Different keyboards, digital sampling keyboards, could do that, which is why I bought that lower end one to try to get into doing that kind of thing. But because that became popular again from due to Stranger Things, other people on on YouTube have made like how-to videos how did kate bush make that that song with what instruments and what actual samples and stuff and so i have this i, I bought like the entire library of a company called arturia they make like recreations of of software synths they also have like hardware as well like a midi controller and, and other things so they have like almost every classic bit of analog gear and then 
also a digital gear after that. They've done recreations of it. One of which is called the Fairlight CMI, and that's what Kate Bush used, and Peter Gabriel used it quite a bit. And so somebody on YouTube had made a video say, hey, here's how you remake that, and here's the actual sample that, that they include in Arturia's recreation. They have the, the whole original sample set in there. And so they, I, I, I watched that, and I went back, so, oh, I got to try making this myself. And then they, they mentioned the drum machine that's used. I have, like, a sample set for that drum machine. And I made like a very simple recreation. It was like, oh my God, it really, that's it. You just put some effects like reverb and effects processing on that sound. Like, wow, I can't believe that's actually, I'm recreating almost exactly what she did all those years ago. Because you still have the machine. Well, I have this virtual recreation of it, software recreation of it. Yeah. That wow. machine was like $40,000 at the time. There's like yeah. very few studios had it. Yeah. Going back to your progression, you're getting that experience at Sega and then you take the you start with this new company that's headquartered in Toronto. And mm. how did you end up then actually becoming what you always wanted to do, which was a visual effects designer? Yeah. So, yeah, the way it happened was like I was always trying to just make this dream come true. And I was taking like these these steps toward it. Magically, somehow it was working. Is that in Assyrian? Is that kismet? Yeah, kismet. Kha or Ka? I don't remember. I, I Kha, Kismet. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was so, your destiny. Yeah. Your destiny. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, so I, I mentioned I joined that company, uh, Alias Wayfront. After being with that company for a year and a half, a job opportunity came up to fill a slot in their San Francisco field office. And I was focused on the games industry there. That company, they, they made software for industrial design, and they also made software for entertainment. And within entertainment, there was mainly film and video, and then there was games. It was like equally big uh, industries. So in Japan, I focused on games because that was the main thing in Japan. And then when I got this opportunity came up, I, for various other reasons, I decided to come back to the States and start to build a financial future for myself as well. And so this sounded like the, the best opportunity to do that. So I came back, replaced somebody in the San Francisco office. And the other reason this was great is because that particular office serviced like Industrial Light and Magic, a place called Tippet Studio, another one called PDI, which later oh, okay. became DreamWorks. But but that wasn't my territory. That was one of the other. I was an application engineer for the company. So basically, I'd work with a salesperson and demo the software. the demo jockey and, you know, I have to answer questions about the technical aspects of the software and stuff. And so, but what I would do is I'd arrange to also join the film and video team to go out so I could get some experience and exposure to the companies I actually wanted to work at. And so one of those opportunities, well, one of those meetings led to a really good opportunity. And so I really wanted to go to work at Industrial Light and Magic. That was the dream. But what worked out for me at the time was the company PDI. And they, so the software that we were demonstrating at the time was called Maya. It's still used like 20 plus years later, but this was when it was version one, really. And so all these companies were, they didn't have much knowledge of the, of the software, so they were hiring people from my company as, you know, as what they call TDs in the industry, technical directors, to help use that software and get other people up to speed with it. So that opportunity worked out really well for me at this company, PDI, and I joined their division to do um, initially work on TV commercials, but then very quickly they, they had a, a group of us move over to the, the motion picture side of, it, of the same company, and they were working on the first Shrek movie. So I worked for a long time on the Shrek movie, about a year in total, I guess. And so that was the first film I got credited on. What did you do exactly? So in this case, I was helping to integrate that Maya software in, the, you know, in version one. But the team I was assigned to, I was really interested in doing what's called effects animation. Mm -hmm. 
And so I had kind of like taught myself that aspect of things while I worked at Alias Wayfront so that I could present myself being more knowledgeable in that area. And because I had been a software developer before that, that software package, Maya, plus competing packages, they all had their own scripting languages. So you could uh, develop tools in the software. And so, you know, I had done enough of that that when I was out on sales calls for, for Maya, oftentimes you know, I'd be with a salesperson and then they, you know, we give the demo. And then after that, they say, well, does the software do this? We really need to do this. And you would build it out. And I'd build it out. I said, yeah, can't, doesn't do it out of the box, but right. you know, I'll show you how you can do that. But that job was such an awesome job for you. Oh, yeah. That because was... now you're going to all these amazing organizations. You're meeting people. You're shaking hands. Oh, yeah. At right people, yeah, yeah, And yeah. you're learning to improve products. And, and when I got to join the, the uh, film and video team, I was in a, like, I'd get to join some meetings in a room with people that were, some of whom were kind of like sort of heroes of mine. And people I'd read about, I'd, I'd have seen their names in the credits of Star Wars or Star Trek movies. And there they are all They're discussing all this, there. that, and the other. And yeah. thinking, oh, my God, I can't believe this. <laughs> Did, were, you, were you able to like deal with that from an imposter syndrome perspective? Well, yeah, because at that point, I wasn't, I was still working at Alias. I wasn't, on the, I wasn't working at those companies yet. Yeah. But even when I got to PDI, I, really, I felt really dumb. You know? I didn't have any experience coming in. So... This was the big deal. Like, how do you break into this industry? It's really difficult. You know, years later, they started opening all these schools that teach computer graphics. And they didn't have that one at my age or when I was that age. So it was all kind of up to you to come up with your own demo reel and whatnot. So luckily, because I worked at Alias, I had access to the machines and the software. I, you know, I'd, I'd work on my own little projects and put together a little demo video to show people. And that's what helped me get into PDI. But, but you're asking what I did there. So I was really interested in effects animation. It was basically using particle systems. And then later on, they didn't have it at the time, but later on was like fluid dynamics and that kind of thing. So I just like the idea of being able to manipulate groups of objects and to do things procedurally, as opposed to what's called like character animation, where you do keyframe animation. So keyframe animation is like it, you, you go to a certain frame and then you, you take a snapshot. So I, I might move the arms around in the head and then I, I, I record that. And then I move a few frames down the road and I, I rotate it this way and do whatever and you record. It. And when you play it back, you get the animation out of it. Right. That, that kind of reminds me of uh, like old school, like stick figures. that Stop motion animation. Stop motion yeah. animation. Yeah. 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 I, I, I love that stuff too, but yeah. I just don't have the, the, the patience so for that. So tell me you know? now about the stuff you got into. Yeah. So, so I was really interested in effects animation and basically you use particle systems to re, uh, recreate things like natural phenomena, so like rain, okay. smoke, dust, fire. Uh, and then you can do other simulations where you can do like destruction, mass destruction of buildings, like when the Avengers are attacking New York or, 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 you know, attacking aliens in New York and whatnot, all kinds of stuff that's not explicit, like to a character. And this was where my interest was. And so when I got to PDI and started working on Shrek, they, they knew I was interested to do the effects. They didn't have any openings in that group, so they put me in a group that was doing the digital cloth. So we did cloth simulations for the main characters. So for Shrek, Fiona, uh, what was his name? Farquaad. I guess mainly those three characters. They were all wearing some kind of clothing element. So we used Maya and its own cloth solver. They called it a cloth solver. There were some competing cloth solvers, but we used the, the standard built-in one. And so I worked on a bunch of shots in the film simulating the clothing. So Fiona's walking around, her dress is moving appropriately, or she... The most difficult shots were if she ended up having to kneel down and then stand up to get all that to look right. Shrek's tunic and whatnot was a lot easier because it was a lot more rigid. 
But then I, uh, after we got a lot of that work done, then they let me start doing some of the more effects type stuff. So I was doing things like a lot of dust, like particle simulation where it does, like they have little battles out there and someone's footprints would hit and the dust would come up, this kind of stuff. And the main shot I got to work on was Shrek was thrown by the dragon, I think, or somehow he's flying in the air at night and he, he crashes into the, to the palace, to the kind of the, the top of the palace mm-hmm. into where the princess is. And so that whole destruction sequence of him crashing through the ceiling and all those all the dynamics of the ceiling breaking apart and the chunks falling and crashing on the floor and all the dust that comes up from that. That was like the main thing that I felt really proud of doing. That was in the all film. you, huh? Yeah, I mean I did that aspect of that wow. shot. Oh you know? that's amazing, man. That's yeah, that was very that, that was a lot of fun, yeah. And just the amount I was learning there from all these people. What uh, was it like for you when Shrek became as big as it was? And you knew you played a little bit of a role. Like you did something important for that movie, right? Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I wasn't as excited to work on Shrek as I was to work in the original group I joined, which was called Cafe, which was for the TV commercials. And they were working on other feature films that were not done internally. And I really didn't have a lot of interest in uh, like a fully animated film. I wanted to do live action movies. But after the film was done, I was really surprised, pleasantly surprised by two things. Well, three things, actually. So a big one was when I finally saw it in the film, they, they you know, they had like a, a company casting crew screening. They, they often do that. And I saw my name in the credits for the first time ever. I, I, you know, that's another big <laughs> moment. Yeah, Absolutely. The other thing was how popular it became. Like I never expected the film to be very popular. And the third thing was, because I'm a huge soundtrack and score fan the yes. music was really good and i was like wow this is i can't believe it. i worked on a film and the music is that good for the movie the first real movie i worked on uh, yeah it was it was a great experience in that regard but again the, the other aspect of it is it was, it was like a big family there too so not yeah. just working on the film but all the people i was working with were amazing you just had great relationships yeah and like folks. uh they'd have a lot of parties at work for things and then there's a group of us we'd go play soccer a couple times a week and there and the other great thing and this was true of a lot of the companies i worked in in visual effects even now though it's all it's remote work at this point is there you, you meet they have so many people from all these different countries it's just really fun like right. you know because i i like foreign countries and language i love languages and whatnot and cultures so it's great to be able to meet all these different people and become friends with them. You're friends kind of for life. So now I'm I'm connected to a lot of these people mainly on Facebook. But, you know, there's people all over the world. Like if I ever go to some other country, luckily if I wanted to, I could hook up with somebody and, you know, catch up and all that. Yeah. Have a place to stay. Right. Um, and it broadens your perspective on the world. And it yeah. broadens how you communicate. And it just changes your existence when... Now, like for a lot of us, we're working and we're dealing with people we see at the grocery store Mm -hmm. as opposed to like, whoa, I'm working with someone from the Philippines or Japan or Iraq or wherever, you know, so that's pretty wild. That's awesome. Yeah, it's another really interesting and fun aspect of it all. Probably for a guy like you, you feel at home in that environment. That's more of what, you know, you would rather be a part of. So... Tell me now what you did after Shrek. I mean, really, how did you end up at Lucasfilm? Right. Okay, so I'm currently working at Lucasfilm. And so basically, once I worked at at PDI, you know, I developed a number of friendships there. But the way the industry typically worked, some companies would hire people as staff, Mm -hmm. but a lot of companies just hire on a project basis. And even companies that do have staff employees, a lot of them will hire additional people. They need the help that, that are project hires. So I was basically a freelancer for about half of my career in visual effects. 
And so uh, I worked at uh, PDI, I think it was, again, like a, about a year to a year and a half. And then when Shrek was coming to a close, uh, you know, the work I was doing was all done. I ended up following another guy from PDI to go out to Hawaii and work on a, a movie called Final Fantasy. Oh, wow. So that was a lot of fun. It's like connected to the video game Final Fantasy? Yeah. By the wow. same, the, the, the guy who did all the video games, he made a movie. And uh, so I had been out of Japan for about three or four years at that point, maybe about three years. And so it was also a great opportunity to practice some Japanese again because it was in, in uh, the, the office was in Honolulu. I lived in Oahu and I lived in Waikiki, but the company is about half Japanese and then half non-Japanese. And again, for me, it's like, it was really somehow gratifying. They do dailies so that, you know, you kind of present what you've been working on, you show then you get, re, uh, you know, you get responses from the visual effects uh, supervisor and other people. And so they would do the dailies. They, they, they'd come around to the desks. And uh, so they always have a small entourage at Square in Hawaii where they, the, the director was Japanese and his English wasn't very good at the time, I don't think. Uh, but they'd have translators come and then the other people. So they'd always have these people like the director would say something and then the, the translators do the back and forth. But for me, I, I spoke enough Japanese that I would just communicate directly with the director. So it's kind of fun for me to, okay, now I'm talking to the director directly about the shot of Japanese. And now the, the translator is behind the scenes translating for other people. I see. <laughs> wow. That's so cool because your yeah. background, your time in Japan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So for me, a lot of people say, oh, you don't want to go to work at that company. It's, it's really bad. You know, it's Japanese there. You don't understand the culture. And, you know, yeah, a, yes, lot of, I do. a lot of people left there because of it but for me it's like oh no 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 i want to go there that's it's like the perfect environment for me yeah you knew exactly what was going on so you went from i went from pdi from yeah. shrek out to hawaii for a year to work on final fantasy and then i took some time off after that but i wanted to go uh, uh, back to japan because they were going to do the like the world premiere of the film in japan so i went back there for that and then i i, I wanted to go and study italian in Italy. I thought I'd do like a, you know, a study abroad program. And so I made all the arrangements while I was still in Hawaii to do that. But before I left that, the, the company actually started working on, there was something called the Animatrix. And it was, it was a series of short films, like short animated films about the Matrix. Yeah. And we worked on one of them, which was the only 3D one, I think. So I did a little bit of preliminary development work for that. And then I left and I went to Japan to see the premiere. And while I was there, 9-11 happened, which I, you know, unbelievable and i won't get into all the details of, of what was going on there at the time but i just remember like the the media there was uh, much less censored than it was when i got back here so all, and the japanese very literary they have so many publications so there's so many news magazines there and they all had these like graphic pictures of uh, you know from the atrocity there and then when i got back here you know most of it had been cleansed you don't you don't you hear about they, they describe things but you don't see it graphically in big images on the cover of magazines and newspapers mm -hmm. and stuff but anyway, so my trip to Italy got postponed. I, I, I was kind of stuck in Japan for another couple of weeks. And I, I got back to, to the States, to home here. And then I, I rescheduled the, the, uh, the Italy trip. And so I took about a year off in total there. After which I went to work on, uh, oddly enough, one of the Matrix movies. So it was, it was the third one. They were working on the second and third one at the same time. And so I, I joined one company called Tippett Studio, and they were working on the third one. So I got to do work on that. And that was my first work on a non-fully animated feature film. So Final Fantasy was also fully animated, which I wasn't a, that's not really what I wanted to do, but I thought the, otherwise the opportunity was too good, so I went there. But So I worked on The Matrix at a place called Tippett Up in Berkeley. And while I was there, 
uh, before I got my own place to my own apartment, my aunt and uncle, you know, that, that were in England, they had eventually moved to the States and they moved to Corte Madera, which mm-hmm. is a Marin County. Yeah. So that's just across the Richmond Bridge from Berkeley. So I stayed with him for about, I don't know, like four to six months or something. And that was great. Again, this is another opportunity where I'm trying to practice some Assyrian. And, you know, my, my aunt was making all this great food and I'd play chess with my uncle. It was just great. I really enjoyed it again. I really love that part of my family. They've always been very kind and generous to me. And then after that company, I I finally moved down to L.A. I never thought I'd do that, but the visual effects supervisor I was working with uh, at Square, he had an opportunity to work on an X-Men film. And he said, hey, if I'm free, he could really use me because we got along really well. And so I thought, you know what? I got to go and do that. So I moved to L.A. thinking I'll only work on that project. It was X-Men 2, and I was there for like only the last few months of it during the crunch period. Did some more networking down there. That company was owned by Kodak. Kodak shut it down. And then I ended up moving to Venice, Santa Monica area to work at a company called Digital Domain. And I ended up staying at Digital Domain on and off for about 10 years. I ended up being down there for quite a, quite a bit. In total, I was down there for about 15 years. But uh, I'd go to Digital Domain to work on a project, then go to another company, work on a project, go back to Digital Domain, another company, back, back and forth, back and forth. So I worked on a lot of different film projects, a lot of franchise movies like, uh, I don't know, like Pirates of the Caribbean. I worked on one of those. I worked on a Superman movie. What are some of those? I had already worked on a Matrix there was another, like, I forget, like one of these franchise films that, that I worked on there, but quite a few different movies down there. you worked on iRobot. Uh, yeah, I worked on iRobot. That was only a, a one-off film. But yeah, I worked on that there as well. There was a Peter Pan movie. Oh, one of the other ones was Transformers. That was another, like, franchise thing that we worked on one of those films. So I'm, I am wondering, like, as you throw out these household names of pretty major movies and all that kind mm-hmm. of thing, were you aware that of the opportunities you had and... I didn't really think about it so much. I knew while I was still in freelance mode, I knew I, I wasn't really tied or I wasn't really that interested in working at a particular company. It was always the project. So wherever I had to go to work on the project, that's why I would go back and forth to these different companies. But in the back of my mind, I was always kind of like disappointed that the two franchises that I, I was really interested in as a kid, they got me into it all, was Star Wars and Star Trek. I just never had a chance to work on those movies, mainly because I wasn't working at Industrial Light and Magic up in uh, up in Marin at the time, and then San Francisco. But also, some of that works mainly for Star Trek started getting farmed out, you know, to other companies. But still, they even worked on one of the films at Digital Domain was there. I just wasn't assigned to that project. But then I actually did some detours from visual effects proper. I did some. Uh, we can get more into more detail if you want to later on. But uh, I did some augmented reality development, mm-hmm. and I, uh, I I did some. I took a couple of trips with another, somebody who was actually from, from RLS, the same high school, and he got heavily involved in, uh, in kind of the academic and development side of computer graphics, and I, I reconnected with him years later. I went with him on a couple of trips, one to Egypt and one to Mexico, to the Yucatan. He's heavily involved in cultural preservation, cultural historic preservation. So what he does is he has a company. And he goes and joins these other archaeological teams, and he sets up and does like a 3D capture of the ancient structures, right. which is really I've, interesting. I've heard of that, yes. And they can kind of preserve. And, yeah, they recreate it in 3D, mm-hmm. complete with textures and everything. So you can kind of like, you know, preserve the, the, the environment and the site uh, in 3D for posterity and also for academic research and whatnot. So I, uh, I was really interested to go with him to Egypt. And I worked at a, at a place at a uh, temple called the Ram Museum, which is in Luxor, so near the Valley of the Kings in that area. 
And so I did that for a month. I was out there talking about heat and whatnot. But anyway, so I helped and we worked with the French team. And again, this is kind of side details, but the way it works is Egypt, apparently they don't have enough money to, to preserve their own, you know, historical monuments. So they, they divvy it out to foreign governments. The one that this friend of mine ended up connecting with, I, I don't know the details behind that, but it was the French mission. And they, they, they were tasked with um, preservation of the Ram Museum, which was uh, dedicated to Ramses II. So again, this was really amazing. I'm there and we're, we're doing this. We, he had set up with cameras and to, to take pictures of all the uh, the textures and all the, the hieroglyphs and everything, and then to reconstruct it in 3D. It also would have close-range uh, scanners to get all the um, the geometry. And then to meet the head of the, the French team, who was like one of the leading French Egyptologists slash archaeologists. And I mean, he was there every year studying this. And he could read the hieroglyphs and everything. And so when, uh, right after that, trip we went back to france and they invited me to come back for a few days and that guy named philippe he he, he said okay we got to go to the louvre if you haven't been there but you know you can spend days in there so what do you want to see so of course i want to see the mesopotamian section <laughs> they 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 have things about the assyrian empire there and he goes yeah yeah and i said okay let's can we see that and then egypt because of his knowledge of egypt so he gave me like a very quick kind of like three hour whirlwind tour through the louvre and i he would, he would like, we'd go to see a section and then right after that, okay, come here. And we go through like the back doors because he had wow. access to all that. And then we'd, we'd like, almost like the catacombs of the Louvre and then we'd reemerge in some other area. But basically, so he did exactly what I asked. He, he, he took me to see the Egyptian section and then the stuff they had on the, on the Assyrian empire. And the great, the other great thing about it was there's all the research constantly happening. They have new theories, whatnot. So even though this is what's printed on the placard for this, you know, this obelisk or this, you know, stellar relief, here's what we really think now. They just mm-hmm. haven't like updated the, the 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 text and whatnot. So he gave me the back, you know, the behind the scenes story of what their the current research was. So that was unbelievable. I have two things I would love for us. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, I keep getting no, off it's, on these. No, it's awesome because part there's two <clears throat> things. One, I want to know how you end up at Lucasfilm, at Lucasfilm right? Because I know that that was a part of your dream. yeah, yeah. And then the other thing is, what about your Assyrian side? Yeah. As you're having, like, is there anything inside of you that is stirring up? You're traveling to all these different places. You're doing these wild and amazing things on these different mm-hmm. movies. And you're, is there anything inside of you that's thinking, hmm, how does, what is my, is my bloodline connected to any of this? Like, what what's going on inside you from there? Yeah. Well, to be honest, there's not a lot about my Assyrian background that's come into play in my professional career. Yeah. But I do take, like, the other trip I told you, I went to Egypt. And, you know, being in the Middle East again, it made me think about that. And I just think here's, like, I was in the middle of, like, you know, the ancient Egyptian empire. Right. Uh, vestiges of that. but I was, Your ancestors, you know. But while I was thinking about that, know. yeah. They were kind of at certain points contemporaries. And when I was thinking, right. wow, you know, I'm kind of not far removed from my own heritage here. So I think about those kind of things for sure. But but other than that, I it you know, again, the fact that I didn't really grow up in an Assyrian household per se and wasn't didn't have as nearly as much experience as I would have liked with it, it hasn't really played into my professional career that much. You know, it'd be nice maybe if it if it did more. No, I mean, I guess there's a part of me too that's wonders, what about your dad? Like mm-hmm. what's he thinking? Because his dream was to be an actor. Now his son's making movies. Yeah. 
So how's that relationship? <laughs> my dad was kind of funny in that things I would have thought would have been more important, I had more impact on him, really didn't right. seem to. He was just off whatever was happening at, on, at the moment. Like, so I'll get into the story about Lucasfilm and, and something in particular that I was able to do right before that as well. The way I got to Lucasfilm was the last gig that actually I had in Los Angeles. I, I mentioned that I had never had the opportunity to work on the two franchises that I grew up loving, which was Star Wars and Star Trek. I got close to it a couple of times, but not, you know, no cigar kind of thing. So I had almost kind of retired from visual effects while living in LA and my girlfriend wanted to move to San Francisco. And we had been talking about that on and off for a while. And I was trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do now? Uh, I did some web development and some other things. But then this opportunity came up to work at another company. I thought if I could ever get a job here in LA, I've got to do it. And that was Bad Robot. So a couple of friends of mine had gone to work to work there. And I said, hey, guys, if there's any way I can get in here, let me know. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm available at the moment and whatnot. And then I just happened to reach out to a third friend of mine who was the pipeline supervisor. It was a very small department at Bad Robot for doing 3D stuff. but, And he said, well, let me get back to you. And I said, well, okay. That like the next day or two, he got back and he said, well, you know what? I'm actually leaving. You could come and fill, fill right in for me. And so I almost just walked in there. I mean, I went and met people there and you know, he had some nice reviews for me. And, and they said, okay, well, we don't really know what you guys do, but if he recommends you, you're in. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I, I, again, another one of these experiences, I couldn't believe this was happening. So I got in there on the last few months of the work that they were doing on uh, episode seven, The Force Awakens. So, um, so I got to work on that, doing the pipeline, not, not the animation stuff now, but the pipeline work, which is the tool development mm-hmm. and support of the existing artists. So they had a small group there called Kelvin Optical, which was the, the small 3D uh, 2D and 3D group because that company was actually the production company for the film. It wasn't just the post-production that I was normally uh, used to working in. So that that place was like heaven on earth for, for geeks and nerds. I mean, it was J.J. Abrams' company and uh, he had, I mean, he was a huge fan of these films himself and he had paraphernalia all over the offices. Unbelievable. Um, so uh, it was a great experience working there. So I worked on on Star Wars and then we worked on a smaller production movie called 10 Cloverfield Lane. And then right after that, worked on um, uh, Star Trek Beyond. Wow. So I worked basically back to back on a Star Wars project and then a Star Trek project. Got credited in both films. So I remember when I went to see the premiere of, of Force Awakens, it was at the El Capitan Theater in Hollywood, right across the street from Man's Chinese Theater. They had like the main cast screening the day before and some of us didn't weren't able to go to that, but then we had like a crew screening across the street, so that was still pretty cool. And I was just so nervous at the end, was my name going to be in it or not? Because you're not you're never guaranteed about these things. And as they're finally our our company's uh, you know section of the of the credit list came up right after somebody named Dennis Murin, who was a hero of mine uh, from ILM, working on all the Star Wars stuff. They had the whole ILM uh, group of names go by first our our crew comes up and not only that but like the timing of the music was perfect oh wow and then it's like all the single credit lines i'm like oh god is, is it gonna be there it's gonna be there and then they have like the block of like three or five columns of names come up and right in the center says digital artists and right below the name digital artists right in the top center was my name wow and i was like i've done it you've done it i've done it i, I that was one of the best nights of my life and then we all went out for drinks and stuff after that but i just I was so happy. But one other 
note, I got to tell this. I noticed in the credits that some other people had put their middle name, some in quotes or whatnot. And I was thinking, I should have put my brother's name in there as my middle name. I've never done that in any other film. Never really dawned on me. But because my brother and I grew up loving Star Wars together and Star Trek, uh, I thought, God, I should have done that. It didn't even dawn on me. It was like a missed opportunity. So maybe a couple of weeks later, we're in the office. It's the last day before we go on the Christmas break. And we're up having highballers and we're drinking some whiskey and whatnot. I, the part of Bad Robot I sent was like up on the, there's a small little little area on the third floor. And so one of the guys, the main guys that sits in that area, wasn't there. I was thinking, well, where is he? We're, we're having drinks. I say, hey, where's Sal? You know, and someone says, oh, he's down, he's downstairs on the first floor. They're, they're, they're redoing, they got to stay up all night reading the credits for the streaming release. I thought, ooh, they're, 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 they're modifying the credits. They have to add a bunch of names that didn't get in there for the theatrical release. So to make a long story short, I got permission from the visual effects supervisor to modify my credit to add, quote, my middle name in there. And so then I, I went down to that guy who was not up on the third floor when he should have been and said, hey, Sal, you know, here's, uh, I, got, I got permission from Ben. If you could put my name, my middle name in here. He goes, okay, yeah, I'll do it. You know, as long as you got the permission, that's cool. I'll do that. I go, you got to promise you're going to do it. And he goes, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. So I had to wait for like four months until it came out on Apple on iTunes. And sure enough, I, I bought the film. And there it was, Kenneth Stephen Ibrahim. That's my brother's name. And I thought, oh, it worked. It, it worked. And so then I arranged for my mom. I very quickly called my mom and said, hey, go to my brother's house because they both live here in town. And uh, I'm going to pretend like you're going over there because my brother saw my name in the credits in the theater. We went together to see it. And so he saw just my name. I said, so you go over there. You pretend like you're just going there so my brother can show you my name in the credits and I'll, I'll join with FaceTime. But in reality, I got his name in there. So you're going to see him seeing his name in the mm-hmm. film. And I'm going to hopefully do that. Unfortunately, something went wrong with the video and the FaceTime call. But it was perfectly planned. You know, he saw it. And I heard him start almost like screaming or something. And so I really quickly reconnected with the FaceTime. And he still had this look like, like he couldn't that's believe it. So you know, special, man. So that's awesome. So we're both, our names are in Star Wars. And then that, that, that was my time at Bad Robot. There's a whole bunch of other stories I can tell about that. But. We want to get to Lucasfilm. So I moved to San Francisco months at, well, about half a year after that. I did some work at a, uh, a company. I wanted to get a, a job in uh, Silicon Valley. It's some tech startup. Somehow I was able to make that happen. I worked at a company that was dealing with data science and, and, and a platform for data scientists to use. I did that for about a year and a half, I think. Or maybe, no, no just about under a year, actually. And then I, then I joined another smaller group working on a VR game. Something else I really wanted to try doing. Unfortunately, that didn't go anywhere. But you're asking about Assyrian. Where have I ever used yeah. my Assyrian background? For that VR game, it's kind of like a wizard. And you can fire these spells and destroy things and make things happen. And so I was doing all the effects work for it. So like the the effect of the spells. And then, I don't know what you call it, like a magic circle. Like when we just do stuff, you know, like you put your hand out. And this thing comes up spinning around mm-hmm. the hand. And the, the energy comes out of it. In that circle, I had put the names of myself and my family members in Assyrian because wow. it kind of looks like runes to other people they wouldn't know it's the Syriac script or whatnot so I, I kind of hid that in there but an Assyrian if that game unfortunately I don't think that game ever came out but if it had come out an Assyrian person would say oh that's actually Assyrian language uh, script in there and if, so and if they cool. if they like were able to stop it somehow it didn't spin too fast they could probably spell it out and say oh that sounds like names but then after that a friend of mine that had gone to the same high school I didn't know him in high school. He's like 10 years behind or, yeah, after me. He was, I met him on a couple of film projects in the industry. He was saying that, uh, well, actually, I went back to, to RLS to the high school for a career day for kids, for the students there, and it was film uh, focused on film. 
And so I gave a presentation about my career in visual effects, and he gave a presentation about his work at Lucasfilm. He was working at Lucasfilm on the Clone Wars animated show and a couple of other ones, um, Rebels and something else. So anyway, after we each gave our presentations, we, we kind of reconnected there. And I said, hey, you know what? If you guys ever have any opportunities at Lucasfilm, you know, let me know. And so maybe six months later, he contacted me and said, hey, you know what? There might be a, a position we need to fill really quickly. And I know it's in your line of work. So are you, are you available? I said, yeah. And unfortunately, that didn't work out. The position didn't open up. And then like a couple of tries later, the position finally opened up. Somebody was transferring internally. They finally made that transfer and it opened up. I interviewed and then I got the job. That's awesome. So that's how I got to, uh, to Lucasfilm. Actually, it was through a high school connection. And I remember when I was in high school myself back in the 80s, they had this career day and somebody from Lucasfilm had come to talk and I made sure to go to that presentation. And here I was years later at one giving a presentation myself and then reconnected with that guy who then eventually got me into Lucasfilm. So that's how I got there. And what I do is I, I actually work not at ILM, but I work at some, a department called Lucasfilm Animation. And I mentioned they had worked on the Clone Wars, they had worked on Rebels, and another one called Resistance. And I joined while they're working on a, a show called The Bad Batch. So mm-hmm. I work on The Bad Batch. We were also working on another kind of clandestine show at the time that now it's been revealed. It's called Tales of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. So I worked on both of those. And now there's a second season of, of The Bad Batch that I was working on that's coming out. They've announced it at this Disney D3 convention. It's going to be released next January. Man, that is so cool, Ken. So, so the other thing I did was, from the get-go on this one, when I finally got my name in the credits, and I'm in the credits for any number of episodes that I've been working on, again, I did the same thing with my brother's name as my middle name. You know, And that reminded me of, of your uncle, mm-hmm. uh, Sargon, yeah. bailing out Nenev. Yeah. <laughs> and there seems to be a pattern of the big brother coming through and doing yeah, something miraculous. I, did, I didn't for think the about that, brother, but yeah. Know? But yeah, it's it's interesting. That's and, a big deal, man. It, you know what? I have a big brother. I'll have to talk to him and say, Hey man, did I get into What's your going credits? on here? What do you think? <laughs> did you feel a sense of fulfillment in your work on there where you were like, Wow, my childhood dreams have been finalized? Yes. Yes indeed. The only component of it that, that it's kind of missing. I didn't work at ILM itself, but I, I mean, given the opportunity like that, I worked at Bad Robot on Star Wars, directed by J.J. Abrams, who was himself a Star Wars fan. Right. Where you're, you're actually on the inside. So even if I worked at ILM, I would have been doing the the effects work, but I wouldn't have seen all the rest of it. I see. Whereas on a day to almost a daily basis, uh, you know, all these people are coming through the company that were involved. Like I saw Harrison Ford there. Another friend of mine saw him actually dressed as Han Solo, which I didn't have that opportunity, but it's still cool to see him there. But one of my biggest moments at Bad Robot was I thought to myself, because I'm a huge, uh, I told you, soundtrack fan. My, my biggest influence there is John Williams. Mm-hmm. I love John Williams. Music. I grew up listening to that music, you know, etched in my mind, these soundtracks. You know, obviously he was scoring the film. I thought, you know, if he ever comes into the office, I'm just going to, I don't know, break the rules a little bit and just go and thank him for the for the lifetime of music, you know? Which is a bold move for you yeah. to make. So somehow, again, magically, one day I'm on the first floor, I'm in the small kitchen waiting for my coffee. Who comes around the corner and walks down the little ramp there? No. John Williams, all by himself, no entourage or anything. <laughs> and he comes to stand at the bottom of the ramp, waiting for JJ to come, who sits on the second floor, his office up there. So JJ's assistant comes down and says, oh, it'll, JJ will be here soon or whatever. I'm like, come on, coffee, come on, coffee. <laughs> and I said, am I going to do this? Am I going to do this? So I had, I had literally fantasized this moment. I, somehow I, I got myself to do it. I have the copy in one hand, but I, I walk up to, to the maestro, John Williams, 
who I had gone, I'd seen almost every year I lived in LA, I'd go to his Hollywood Bowl concert. Mm-hmm. And you'd see him on stage and these big screens of the Hollywood Bowl, you know. And I think he was always such a proper gentleman up there and when he would address the audience. And I'd seen a few in- interviews with him on, uh, I don't know, on YouTube or whatever. So I go up there, I just extend my hand. He, like as, as a, like a, a, a natural reaction, he steps forward, extends his hand. Now he shake his hand. I'm just like in disbelief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I said something like, Maestro Williams, I just wanted to take this opportunity to thank you for literally, for me, a lifetime of wonderful, wonderful music. Thank you so much. And he goes, oh, you're welcome, whatever. And I said, it's because of you that I, I, I studied uh, trumpet and French horn. And he, then he made some comment that initially, I'm still in disbelief. I kind of practiced that moment as what I was going to tell him and, you know, with the few moments I would have. And uh, he said something and uh, it didn't dawn on me initially what he's saying. But then I, like, I kind of caught back on and he's basically apologizing for what it's done to my lips, you know, playing the brass instruments. Oh, okay. Something about my chops or whatever. Yeah. You know? And I thought, okay, I better not bother him anymore. And I said, okay, just again, thank you so much. And just as I was like unshaking the hand, pulling my hand away, JJ comes like hopping down the stairs and I had read an article that they, JJ and John Williams hit it off, you know, really well. And they call each other like JJ baby and Johnny baby or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so just as I'm pulling my hand away, I turn around, JJ is like bouncing down the staircase and he kind of gives me a quick look like, Hmm, who's this talking to John Williams? Yeah. And then John Williams says, JJ baby. And then like, I turn around and see them hugging each other. I walk up the staircase to the second floor. His assistant is now up at the second floor. And I said, I said, Amir, I hope I don't get fired, but I think that was worth it. And he goes, oh, no, no, you won't get fired. <laughs> Man, that is so uh, awesome. I could John Williams has done pretty much like every major movie. Yep. And the other part of that is it is really, really hard to talk to your heroes. Yeah. People don't understand. No, that. no. They think, it, oh, yeah. it's going to be, you're going to get to meet this person and it's going to be like, you're going to feel... It is you obviously like in your situation, you're in your head. Yeah. You're completely in your head. And the guy yeah. is giving yeah. you a witty, legitimate yeah. connecting point. Yeah. 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 And here we are, you know, however many years later. Yeah. And if the dude walked into the room right now, we'd yeah. probably both be like, Okay, what do we do right now? Yeah. 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 Isn't that it's wild? literally a living legend? He really is. Yeah. So that was that was an amazing another one of those moments in life I'll never forget. Well, hey man, you are our living legend. So uh, <laughs> not quite, but again, yeah, well, I appreciate the sentiment. Yeah. yeah, Ken, it's honestly just listening to your story, your background, your intelligence. It's awesome, and I will share. Like, yes, you didn't grow up close to the Assyrian community. Yes, yeah. you may have not learned how to speak Assyrian, but Everything you've shared with me, it, sh- it shares like ingenuity, mm-hmm. resilience, adventure. Yeah. And when you listen to all the different Assyrian podcast episodes, that's what you're going to find. Yeah. You, you, I've enjoyed a number of them now. So, yeah. Yeah. You're going to find people who, and of course, we are human and lots of different ethnic groups have those stories. But as I hear it, and and maybe it's my own bias that's reading into it, I'm like, Man, in many ways, your Assyrian heritage touched you in ways that weren't as explicit, but they were always there with you. Yeah. And, and here you are now. You've taken an interest in your own Assyrian identity. You're wanting to learn the language. Mm-hmm. You did. You were, You said yes to being on this show, which yeah. is cool. Well, I was uh, really happy to meet you. I couldn't believe that. 
I, I forget now how I came across the uh, the podcast, but then to discover that you actually live in Monterey, I was like, what? Of all the places in the world to live, I thought maybe Turlock. Yeah. You know, at, at closest, maybe Chicago, if you're in the States. But I couldn't believe it's Monterey, so I said, I, ha- I definitely have to meet up. Yeah, and I'm excited about, you know, building that friendship with you. Yeah, me too. more. Oop, Anna. Yes, <laughs> I love it. And that's the thing. You say a lot of that stuff. That's pretty cool. Like, you know when to use those words. They fit. Like, that fits perfectly. Uh, yeah, thanks. I just, you know, I, I try. And uh, hopefully, uh, with your uh, tutelage, I can I can learn more. I hope. And uh, it'll be a good, good learning opportunity for both of us. But, yeah, I mean... I, I appreciate you just being willing to open up and share. And I'm also, I think to myself, I wonder what's next for Ken, you know? Me too. Yeah. But I really appreciate the opportunity to, to be on the podcast and to tell my story. And I'm looking forward to hearing more of the episodes to hear other people's stories. Like there was one I listened to, his name was um, something Bricha. And he was a, like a, uh, he was a musician mm-hmm. doing electronic or EDM music or some kind yes. of... Yes. Some kind of electronic, they have all these sub-genres. But I thought it was really cool to hear his story because I also do music as a hobby and I wanted to hear about what, what, you know, what, where he got where he was. So I'm looking forward to listening to more of these podcasts myself to see you know, what other people's stories and journeys are. But I'm, uh, I'm really grateful that you've taken it upon yourself to do this podcast. And even like the first one I listened to was with uh, Linda George. Mm-hmm. I've never met her, but I'm, I'm familiar with her name. I, I've heard some of her music. I, like I said, I listened to a lot of Australian music as a kid, but it was great. Like that was the first episode that, that was like, wow, what a great first episode. Yeah, she was, she was so sweet and she's obviously like a wonderful speaker and insight and wisdom. And that was easily one of my favorite episodes just because obviously it was like the first episode and she was very giving of her time, very generous yeah. to be like, sure, Steve, she didn't know me, but she was like, sure, if it's something Assyrian related, I want to help with that. Yeah. That's awesome. Ken, one thing we ask people who are on the Assyrian podcast is if mm. you could say one thing to all the Assyrian people everywhere, what mm. would you say to them? Wow, that's a it's kind of a tough question. That's like a lot of responsibility to answer that question. It and is. I'm saying it from my perspective, like you were saying with my kind of lack of having grown up in the Assyrian community. My response to that would be, based on my own personal endeavors as well, is do whatever you can to learn and maintain the language and thereby the culture as a byproduct almost of the language or vice versa. I just really regret I didn't learn to speak fluently. And, you know, once the language is gone, a large component of that culture is gone. So I would just encourage, especially people like myself who are some percentage Assyrian, that they may not be in an environment where it's immediately available to them. Maybe do what you can to try to, to, try to figure out how to learn it and, and maintain it, you know. It's a, it's a real shame that, that it's being lost. Yeah, and I I will share that you, you've you said, you know, I'm half Assyrian, and many many now are no longer using that as, as an identifier because you can be full Assyrian and full American. Mm-hmm. And so I hope you see that about yourself. Like, even in our time together, mm. you, you picked up a lot of the Assyrian culture in you and your warmth and your intelligence and uh, your creativity so well you're very kind very kind words of you thank you the other thing i would say is i did this myself and actually (laughs) i went back to review it before this interview as to about my father uh and the assyrian side of my family is i did actually was my mother's idea to encourage me to do this maybe five or six years ago i didn't i sat down with my dad and interviewed him 
almost like we're doing here, but all about his life and his early life and his journey to the oh, States and all of that. must be so fascinating. Oh, yeah, and I edited it, and it's, it's still, it's about, it's almost three hours. So in the last couple of days, I just went back. I have it on video on YouTube as a private video. I shared it with all my family and whatnot. But just to keep a, the record, you know. And I went back like on two times speed and kind of tried to get back through as much of it as I can. Okay, oh, yeah, I forgot this detail and that detail. Mm-hmm. Where he grew up, what, what parts of Baghdad he actually grew up in and whatnot. It's pretty interesting. I'm sure if I mentioned some of these things, a lot of other Assyrians would say, like, oh, yeah, my, my parents or grandparents came from there. So I'll mention one, one name he mentioned. I think it was called... Um, Kuryat Meriam was apparently an area, I don't want to say it's not like an apartment complex, but it was like an, a, an area where a lot of Assyrians lived. And so he lived there for some amount of time growing up. So I don't know how many other people know what that actually means. I know Meriam is for Mary. I don't know what the other word, he even admitted he didn't know what the other word meant. Mm. But who knows how many other people, their their lineage has gone through there. Yeah. Like Ellis Island or something, you know? Right. There's small pockets all over Iran and Iraq that Assyrians lived in. And, mm-hmm. you know, here we are 50, 60, 80 years later. Yeah. And people people still refer back to those villages and those locations. Mm-hmm. You know, same as you growing up in Pacific Grove. Right? Yeah. You've got you've got the or some part of Pacific Grove. You know, that kind of to that level of detail. Right. You know? Right. Well, thank you so much for taking this time and. Yeah, again, thanks so much for the opportunity. I really enjoyed this, and I'm really looking forward to getting to know you better and hanging out in Monterey. We'll make it happen. So I'll end by saying, Basim Araba, Upush Pshena, Chazin Nuch Midri.